This podcast is brought to you by the Galaxy Lamps Galaxy Projector 2.0. Support the channel by clicking on that unique link in the description. That's galaxylamps.co slash M-O-I-D. And then also support the channel by clicking the unique link in the description for myheritage.com, where you can get a free 14-day trial. And then also, also support the channel by going to the unique link in the description to Vite Ramen, where you can get 10% off tasty Protein rich ramen with offer code Broken Silicon. And we'll talk about these sponsors more later, but for now, let's just get on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I am joined by somebody who, you know, it's funny. I got the idea to reach out to you because I, where the last Broken Silicon episode was coming out, it was like just barely not going to acknowledge the recent Threadripper release. And I was thinking, well, then, well, so then whatever guest I have on, we've got to talk about Threadripper. I mean, that's the big release to ignore it would be insane. Then I realized, I've had James on before a couple of times. This is someone who is, you know, at the ground floor of segmenting, marketing, and selling the original Threadripper lineups. And it hasn't been, well, it hasn't been at all a thing that we could talk about a non-pro Threadripper, even though you've been on twice over the past few years. And I thought, well, I can't think of a better person. And this is, as chance would have it, the time... Since I've started talking to you, James, that there is a non-pro Threadripper launching. So I'm glad to have you on and please introduce yourself to people. What you have done professionally is you actually have a pretty decently long resume here. And then just what got you into the line of work you're in? Yeah, for sure. Hi, everybody. My name is James Pryor. I am uh, part of the tech enthusiast community. I started off, I did a Bachelor of Science degree in Portsmouth, England, so if my accent sounds funny, that's because I grew up in England and now I live in Texas and uh, no one can tell where I'm from anymore. But yeah, I got into software programming and then into uh, building virtualized environments. Back then it was just called virtual virtual servers. Now you call it smart grid for things like uh, <clears throat> smart hospitals, smart universities, smart cities, that kind of stuff. Uh, built a relationship with AMD, started working for them as a product manager and was part of the team that introduced, defined, and uh, launched the Ryzen and Ryzen Threadripper desktop line of products. From there, I moved to uh, SciFive, a RISC-V IP company. And from there, I moved to NXP, a leader in IoT, automotive, industrial, computing edge devices. Um, so doing the rounds, trying to learn more about technology, the industry, where it's going, and how to make it work better. So I'm actually curious about this. You said defined Threadripper. I really don't, I've never asked anyone, actually, I don't think, I don't even think you about like what that even really means. Like, because I know Threadripper started as a Skunks Works project. You had Epic, and then you had AM4 Ryzen. And then I assume at some point a team was like, well, what if we tried to, I I imagine it was envisioned like, can we make Epic cheap enough to sell to consumers and fill in that middle ground? And I'm curious, like, what you mean by like, it was defined as Threadripper, like, because it was always for an HEDT platform, 
right? And like, did the name come before you realized exactly what it would be or after? And, and I'm kind of curious if it was like always thought of as HEDT or if it was thought of as workstation from the beginning. Well, that's a great question. So the, the genesis of where uh, that platform came from was really about growing up the stack. So you got to think back in 2014, 2015, 2016, wasn't a lot of belief that AMD could do anything to come back and fight against Intel. There was all these big headlines, AMD's about to go out of business, there were the layoffs, there was so much negativity, there wasn't any belief. So mm-hmm. when we're putting together the Ryzen stack and figuring out you know, where we can price it, where we can do with it, and seeing just how great the competition, the new market we were opening up was going to be, then it was like, well, how do we get more? How do we go higher? How do we do more with this stuff. So it wasn't, we didn't start from like, how do I dumb down Epic into HEDT? It was more like, how do I grow Ryzen? How do I do more with what I've got? And that's, you know, we had this great four or five, six guys um, across the globe. It was you know, a few in North America, a few in India, that we were just sitting there thinking, building this Skunkworks project of like, how do we leverage what we've done already to be really easy to fit into our incredibly constrained resources, but develop and introduce a brand new platform. And we really leaned hard on the partners, the motherboard partners, to help us uh, get that done. And it was because there was so much um, using off-the-shelf parts and leveraging the existing ecosystem to build this new platform, it was, man, this is going to be exciting. And it came from... A number of us were just super excited about a big, hairy CPU with tons of cores and tons of threads and lots of memory channels and lots of PCIe bandwidth. All the stuff that, you know, we'd had a thousand paper cuts from the reports Mm -hmm. back from the field over the years of why they didn't want to buy FX and why they didn't want to buy the Athlons based on the the bulldozer cores, et cetera. Like, it was a way to check off the list of everything that everybody have ever said you don't do this. Mm-hmm. And that's where it came from. And, you know, as part of the branding exercise of, of creating the Ryzen brand, we'd had these several other ideas. And one of them was Threadripper. And it just, it all kind of gelled together. Like Jim Anderson, when he was the GM of the client business group, and we pitched him the idea and we're saying, like, this is what we want to do. He said, oh, this is perfect. And I already know what we're going to call it. We're calling it Threadripper. Just, you know, this is it. This is the, this is the guy. So a lot of um, internally, we turned the corner on permission to believe. We knew we could do it. We were already in the process of doing it. So then it was just going to be like, let's get it out there, launch it, announce it, and and go real fast. So it sounds like, you know, there there were a couple of small teams just trying to see, like, what do we have available to make a HEDT platform that bridges the gap that will require very few new resources to actually launch the thing. And in the middle of that, the name Threadripper was, you know, was envisioned. And that, that was, it sounds to me, it sounds like you're saying that the actual name itself was an early driver of the program too, right? Like, wouldn't you say, or would you, again, or would you say they came up with the whole thing and then they're like, this is the name. But they're kind of in parallel. So, um, but but that's a little unique, right? Because some programs I've heard about, the name comes at the end. <laughs> like, it's not midway. They're like, we don't even know what we're going to call it. Like, I think, I, I, oh, God, I'm blanking. But I think there were a couple of programs where 
Or I can certainly think of some video games where like the code name for the game just became the name of the game and they right. never came up with something else or, or they never came up with the name until the last second. And it was seemed a little clumsy. It sounds like with Threadripper, it was early on that branding was thought of. Yeah, we'd had the, the branding because we were really uh, deriving from Ryzen, right? Because you you got to think we were going from you know the air quote eight core FX to the eight core sixteen thread Ryzen seven eighteen hundred X, and we kind of had an idea of the brand architecture and what those were going to actually be um, about a year probably before it were, it hit the consumer shelves, but you know, how we would then differentiate a high-end desktop platform was something, you know, we wanted to think about, like, do we even go for Ryzen Threadripper? Do we Mm. do Ryzen 9? Do we do not Ryzen at all? And, you know, internally, the discussion was, well, we don't have enough resources to do more than one brand. So let's concentrate everything about Ryzen. So if people think that Ryzen is awesome for HEDT and for desktop, that's not a bad thing. That's fantastic. That's what we want. So then it's just, well, how do we, you know, anybody who cares is going to really know which model numbers and part numbers to go after. So it's just going to be in the middle of how do we separate at a high level the, the thread rippers versus the, the AM4 platform. And that's how we kind of looked at it is just, you know, how do we, how do we get the, it, it really worked out in a number of different ways, it kind of fell into our lap. But, you know, Threadripper, everybody, you know, people <laughs> laughed at it at first, being a sewing tool, you know, how you rip stitches out of some clothing. Oh, really? <laughs> you know? Um, but that's because our language at the time was we were talking about 8 cores, 16 threads, 16 cores, 32 threads. We were, we were very intentional internally talking about we've got this threading capability and it's a, a really big throughput booster you know, it's better than Intel hyper-threading technology because you get more throughput and blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, this is the, the the things we were hoping for when we were pulling this all together. So threads were front and center as a differentiator. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, you always have these differentiating technologies, these moments, what helps you stand out against the competition and what helps you catch up in the minds of people. Because back then, nobody thought we could do anything. So Threadripper really, it was a single phrase that got to everybody to say, well, what does that mean? And then mm-hmm. you can tell your story. You know, lots of cores, lots of memory, bandwidth, lots of PCIe lanes, lots of power. It's all it's, it's all and everything that you'd want out of a HEDT platform. You know, that's interesting too, because I'm just now realizing the way Intel's decided to go about it recently with their Sapphire Rapids workstations is they're called Xeon W. So they haven't leveraged, you know, more of the consumer side of it compared to AMD. They've insisted on saying this is Xeon, but you can overclock it. Whereas you were like, this is Ryzen, but a ton of threads. They've actually gone about the opposite way recently. Yeah. And I think that's because uh, Xeon is their strongest brand. It's Mm. their, their, you know, where they're having the most success in the market still. They haven't lost as much ground on the Xeon side as they have on the Intel Core side. So, you know, I would be in their position tempted to follow the same strategy of like, I don't have the the money and the time to go tell the world about a brand new brand. I don't want to rebrand all of my client products. So I will use the Xeon 
brand and extend it to Workstation and say, hey, Mr. Workstation guy, you're sophisticated. You really want a Xeon. That's what mm-hmm. you want. You don't want a client product, right? It's, it's, it's a defensive or maybe it's an aggressive move to say you don't want a product that was designed for for kiddies at home playing around with multiple friends. You want the stuff out of the server room on your desk, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you really want. So it's, it's um, you know, there's a lot of psychology you could play there. What actually really happens is it's um, what's the easiest thing to do. So <laughs> the easiest and cheapest wins out a lot of times. Well, so I'm curious, though, because I think that is very clear when Threadripper first came out that it was envisioned as bringing an absurd amount of cores and threads to a consumer. It was never cheap, but I mean, when it started out, it was like, I think the first 16 core was 1,000. Zen Plus, it was 900. I mean, the original Threadrippers, it was to a point where people who really didn't need the extra cores could justify it if they had the money. Because it wasn't like they were expected to... I mean, even Intel charged like $1,700 for their 10-core Broadwell e-platform flagship. Yeah. And, and and here was AMD charging 16 or 1000 or even $900 for just for 16 cores. But I think over time, as Epic went from being... 32 versus Intel's 28 to 64 versus Intel's, well, still 28 to 96 cores versus Intel's, maybe 40, but now I guess 60 cores, soon 64 or 68 cores. Um, it, it became much, 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 much more of, you know, going from 8 to 16 cores or even 32 is two to four times the core counts. Going to 96 cores is just, you know, I mean, 6Xing. It's absolutely absurd. And with that has come higher prices. And I'm, I don't know if you've seen any of my, like, recent opinion pieces about this, but I, I'm starting to wonder if there needs to be a rethinking of Threadripper, because it's so interesting that you said it started out as Ryzen, but more threads. It, to me, is starting to feel like it's just epic, but 10% cheaper, like, because they're so expensive now. And I'm wondering, and I, and to be clear about my opinion, I think Threadripper Pro makes total sense. Keep that there. Five, ten thousand dollars CPUs, whatever. That's workstation for workstation prices. That makes complete sense over here. But there is a part of me that's wondering if maybe some more thought needs to be put into kind of doing things the way HDT used to be ten years ago, where it's like fifty to one hundred percent more cores instead of six times the cores, and maybe I don't know thirty. You know, an extra sixteen to thirty-two PCIe lanes, not over a hundred PCIe lanes because I've been talking to some motherboard manufacturers and retailers and it's so expensive now that they say no one really buys it anymore. And so they don't really care. And I've also heard that the support and, and, and the software support isn't there because no one's buying it. And actually hardware unboxed recently in a video said that they're going back to using AM five for their workstations because mm. it's, not worth it to go with a $5,000 CPU that sometimes just has the USB ports not work or something because there's no BIOS update. So so I'm wondering if you think maybe the non-pro Threadripper needs to go from being $5,000 CPUs and $1,000 motherboards to like $1,000 CPUs and $600 motherboards again so that there's actually the software support there for mass adoption. I, I'm curious about that. Oh, that's that's a, this is a... This has preoccupied my thinking for the last few days, thinking about Threadripper, because 
When we originally introduced Threadripper, we were taking on an established market that already had software that scaled beyond mm-hmm. four to eight cores because Intel was already there with 10 cores. And you know, when we first launched 16 cores, the first question all the journalists asked was, what am I supposed to do with 16 cores? Proved to me that it's actually really real in the market. So there was a few little tweaks, but you can go from four to eight to 16 in scaling and in several workloads pretty easy. But then 32, mm-hmm. that was... You know, that, that tech day where we introduced Threadripper 32 core to the world, we didn't sit there with single workload benchmarks. We sat there and talked about mega tasking, ultra tasking, multiple workloads, like running uh, Blender at the same time as you're running an encode at the same mm-hmm. time as you're just gaming, right? To say, look, this is how much power you've got. This may And that resonated with several um, of the... Uh, you know, the render community that were like, oh, wait, actually, you've given me an ability to be able to do my intensive renders, plus go work on some other assets at the same time and still be productive and communicative on email or chat or Skype, whatever else it is that I'm doing without meaningfully impacting my already great render performance. This is great. I love this. You've, given, you've taken me from having two boxes on the desk or a laptop on a workstation mm-hmm. down to just a workstation. Now, the, the problem we've got here is that those circumstances aren't continuing to scale, right? 32 to 64, 64 to 96, what do you do with it? Well, fortunately for all of these HEDT makers right now, the HEDT market is evolving, mm-hmm. right? Five years ago, nobody thought about AI on the desktop. They didn't think about how to parameterize large language models, how to build small language models, how to run sparsity. All of that stuff was not a thing, or you rented immense amounts of compute time from Azure or AWS or somebody else to do it. But now people want to do it on their desktop. They want to play around with generative AI, and they want to build meaningful business applications on top of it, but they want to run it locally because they can't afford the cloud time. So they just want to buy a PC and and figure it out. And then once they've got that, then they'll move it to the cloud and scale it. What the challenge is, is that nobody is telling that story, right? You look at the reviews for Mm. the the Threadripper stuff, and I want to be really clear here. Threadripper is absolute dominance. Clean kill, headshot, uh, mother of all desktop processors has arrived. There is no competition here. And mm-hmm. everything I'm saying that may be perceived as negatively is just a nitpick. I, I'll say the same. <laughs> right? Exactly. We're just nitpicking on how awesome it could be, right? Going from 99.8 to 99.9% awesomeness. But it is it is immense. The same way that um, you know, Mac, um, Apple laptops became really popular because they were the development environment for Apple uh, iPhone apps. Right, whoever the race is on to build the right environment to be the app developer platform for AI, whoever figures that out first with the combination mm. of CPU, motherboard, memory, storage, accelerator is going to be the, the platform of choice. Right now, it's NVIDIA. So, where I think that the opportunity for Threadripper is, is to and it has, is unlock that playground for all of the mad scientists out there, whether they work at a company that's working on AI, whether it's somebody doing it in their spare time, that's going to be the real real game now, 
is somebody's going to figure out how to do something amazing on a Threadripper system that'll catch everybody's attention and quote unquote go viral, and that'll be what everybody else tries to replicate and do. Yeah. So I guess though, all right, Zabito three writes and it says, "Hey, hey y'all, I've a real simple question this time: Is Threadripper seven thousand actually HEDT though, or is it just a low end workstation part? My understanding is that HEDT isn't normally this expensive, and I think." Like everything you just said, um, yeah, I that's a, actually first of all, that's an interesting point that no one's really making the arguments they should be for who is going to use this. But I also agree with what you're saying, and I and I, I want to be clear that what I'm about to say, it's not about fairness, right? Because I think some people would go, well, and I don't even know, I haven't checked because I don't really care. Like the latest Intel workstation parts that require 1500 watt power supplies, like I, I don't know, I you know. You look at that and you're like, Intel's charging whatever it is, like 5,000 for this thing that requi- that breaks power supplies. And AMD's charge, yeah, they're going to charge $5,000 for a 64 core because it's fair for them to. But, but my point isn't whether it's fair or not. Obviously, it's fair relative to Intel. My point is, though, isn't what you're describing, James, a workstation? And isn't the fact that some AIBs, and then again, like Steve at Hardware Unboxed has pointed out, like the software support just isn't there sometimes because not enough people own it. It's not a matter of if it's fair a fair price. What matters is it, it'd kind of be like if NVIDIA launched a $5,000 gaming graphics card that was four times stronger than the 4090. Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of price per frame, that's better price performance than a 4090, but no one's going to pay $5,000 for a gaming card. I th- again, the workstation's there for a reason, what you're describing. I believe, though, is workstation usage, and there's software issues in supporting multiple platforms here because they can't justify the work to do it. Do you think maybe there should be like some, shall we call it, X690 Extreme AM5 platform that meets what people are really looking for? Because I think most people on the bottom just want a few more cores and enough PCIe lanes for like 10 SSDs. They don't need a hundred SSDs for AI development, though. I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I think that there's. If you, yeah, I'm, I'm stuttering and arguing myself in the background here. So uh, I'm going to come down and say no. Actually, I think you've got the platforms today. What you don't like is the fact that there's not a single socket that scales across it. You have to break um, at some point. So I, I'd love the fact that AM5 goes up to 16 cores and that AM4 did. Successfully made a HEDT platform out of a the, basically the consumer and enthusiast platform. So mm-hmm. you can now go from you know four cores to 16 cores with 3D vCache in a single socket. And there's the, the guys who want the four core and the ultra cheap motherboards can have that. And the guys that want the high-end features and all those other things can have that as well. And they don't pay for each other's uh, development. They don't, and they're not burdened by the cost of it. You know, the guys on the high-end stuff aren't like, oh, if I only had more VRMs and chokes and better uh, storage capabilities, because uh, the lower-end guys won't pay for it. And the motherboard guy didn't put it on my board, right? That, that variation, that extreme uh, differentiation, is there today. And that's what um, the hardware and box guys are talking about is right. It's actually, for what they do, where they did need a thread ripper on the first generation, that is now a their workload hasn't evolved with the processes. Mm-hmm. The hardware is way outpaced the software and the things that they do. So 
they are now in a position to buy cheaper systems that work better. And I have a whole separate set of thoughts on the issues that they have, um, not to blame them or to put anything on them, but it's going to be better for them to be on the more mainstream platform because they really need the, the, the software and the hardware that is used by the most amount of people because of all the issues they experience. Now, coming back to what you said of, you know, do we need like a high-end uh, AM5 motherboard? Um you could view it that way. I think that's what the, the low end, what is it, X50 uh, on the new Threadripper series that they have. There's the, the W90 and the X50. I, I can't mm-hmm. remember their model numbers. But they've got the four-channel motherboard that's got the still got a decent amount of PCIe 48 lanes. That's that board, right? What you don't have is a CPU that sits in it that's like a 12-core mm. or an 8-core. That's, that's where I think that there's room for more strategy from... Uh, AMD or Intel, right, is to come in and say, you know, these high-end desktop guys don't necessarily want to to line up 96 cores or 64 cores with that many PCI lanes and memory. They they really only needed 10, 12, 16, 24 was their sweet spot for their workloads today. And in a few years' time, they want to drop in an upgrade because – if you're going to call it HDDT, you've got to remember the D means desktop, and desktop users love to drop in upgrades. And we've just had three generations of no, of broken compatibility, mm-hmm. different sockets between Threadrippers for very good reasons, um, for reasons that in the workstation space are fantastic uh, from the uh, technology side, are very understandable and defendable. But from the consumer perspective, if you're a desktop enthusiast, you look at it and go, oh, man, they didn't think about me at all here. And I, I think that's completely true. So it sounds like your opinion then is it's not so much that AMD needs to push a new chipset for AM5. that they, they basically just have everything you need. They just need to maybe push people to make what people want because the building blocks are there and they're just not making them, right? And am I wrong too? Like, couldn't like a motherboard maker take the uh pcie lanes that they have and like i i forgetting the name for it but like turn like one pcie 5.0 lane into two 4.0s with like a chip that you put on the motherboard like couldn't they make am5 motherboards that perhaps turn some of those 5.0 lanes into double the 4.0 and probably support 10 ssds anyways it's just no one's doing it for and certainly not doing it for a reasonable price i mean they approach Threadripper motherboard pricing anytime they even attempt to do that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. So that's what you're saying, isn't it? Like maybe AMD yeah. just needs to make a gamer-focused Threadripper chip and then also push motherboard makers, hey, make some AM5 motherboards that service this market as well instead of only making these types of motherboards that lack the, n- not the amount of total IO bandwidth, but the amount of connectivity, individual USB ports and everything that people are probably looking for. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about a PCIe bridge chip. There's yeah. plenty of those available. I think the the development of those has kind of rolled off. They're, they're not as uh, mm-hmm. prominent as before because we you know we entered the you know, Ryzen had uh, 24 PCIe lanes. Uh, Intel had uh, I think 24 or 28 at the time. Now we you know with Threadripper we just laid this set the standard at 64 lanes. So everyone's been 
in an abundance of PCIe for a long time and they haven't needed mm-hmm. to break them out, especially when you've got a PCIe lane bifurcation, turn a 16, a by 16 slot into four by fours. That really solves a lot of your of your problems right there. But yeah, they could absolutely get um, uh, additional, I mean, the, the chip always, already exists. It's the AMD Southbridge chipset, right? Those, <laughs> that's what the, uh, the X670 extremes were, right? It was two chipsets mm-hmm. down there. So you had even more PCI lanes. Throw a third one on there. Mm-hmm. More PCIe, more USB. It's, it's right there. Just like, and you could even make it a card, right? Just like Azusa, somebody could put one of yeah, those. Yeah, I think on. someone think even had a, a prototype of that where they added yeah. another one. Yeah. Yeah, just add them in and then hook stuff up to it, right? You could, uh, you know, take a bunch of fan out cables because, you know, PCIe or a cable is a thing now. So you could send it off to little uh, storage enclosures and things inside the chassis or adjacent to the chassis. All of that is possible, but it's fringe science, right? It's it's going to be market-driven. And we've been in a really, really hard place on the consumer market for the last two years. Now, good news is, fingers crossed, and I don't jinx it, this looks like the recovery is coming. Mm-hmm. We're going to see the rebound, and people are going to come back and start buying more and building more PCs. Um, so... On the one hand, I'm looking at the timing of the Threadripper introduction and saying, this is perfect, right? They're poised to win as people come back and start thinking about more expensive PCs again. On the other hand, I'm also looking at it and going, but they paired it with these expensive memory types that are from the Epic world, the server memory, must be a registered DIMM. It's not even the same kind. You can't reuse it anywhere else. Ugh. Like, how is that going to work? Um, so... There's there's pros and cons, so mm-hmm. it's that's that's really the differentiator um, is when that market comes along. I think that AMD have primed the pump here. There is the readiness in the market with all the technology, everything that they can provide is there. It's now going to be a market signal, and it needs somebody. This is something that AMD could do, or they could get a partner to do, or someone mm-hmm. else is just going to do organically but to go drive and jump on a platform and say this, this is the way we build AI or this is the way we build X and drive that platform to new heights. It's a, but you said, yeah, throw a, a third chipset on there uh, or chip on there for more PCIe lanes. Do you, that, you don't think it would be dumb though, to call that like X 690, like so that because the only thing i wonder is like if they don't do that if they don't give it a name will people even realize it exists you know or <laughs> and and by the way if amd doesn't do that little just that little nudge to all the motherboard makers to try to make one of them wouldn't it just be like asus is the only one making it and it's twelve hundred dollars um that feels like that feels like a a market problem right um so th- that could be a negotiation i think that if I, if I think back to 2015, 2016, the motherboard guys were asking us, like, hey, don't be like Intel. Don't prescribe to me everything that has to be on my board. And mm. if I don't put it on there, then I can't call it compatible or whatever else. Let me go do what I want to do because I know this market. I've been here for years, just as long as you have. We enjoyed success together. I are smart. You are, I'm not dumb. Let me go do. And we gave them a lot of freedom, but not complete freedom. And we got some good motherboards out of it. Intel has always been super, super uh, tight on that. Now, you could argue that the USB issues and the other software problems that we've seen are a result of relaxing standards or not creating standards and test methodologies and 
a tight ecosystem for AMD boards versus Intel. You could argue that Intel have had all these issues as well, just no one talks about them because nobody uses them in the desktop space anymore, right? It's, it, you know... The other, the other part of it is, you know, the guy that invented USB works for Intel. So, of course, Intel are really yeah, good at USB. Good point. You know, so there's there's a lot of ways you can spin that and turn it into uh, a conspiracy theory. Um, personally, I would say that, you know, given that AMD has very publicly come out and said that they're an AI company, that's their focus, the number one thing. I don't think there's going to be a lot of internal support for, hey, let's go grab the, the motherboard guys and build a new chipset uh, mm-hmm. brand go do all that and tell everybody about it. And I think that the motherboard guys, as they're desperately trying to um, diversify their portfolios, we see all the motherboard makers now making PCs, making IoT devices, yeah. making smart, uh, you know, all kinds of different devices that they're, they're diversified to, to avoid the problem that they saw with being just dependent on the consumer market. You know, they're in servers, the data center, all, they're all over the place now. They're going to say, look, I've got a brand that I didn't have before. I've got consumer uh, awareness that is at a higher level. And some of that is thanks to the rise of Ryzen, but also because of my other investments. You know, why don't you let me go do this all by myself? And, you know, the traditional thing for the desktop market would be, it would be terrible and a fragmentation and so hard to communicate if there were different brands for each motherboard maker that decided to put three, four, five chipset, yeah. you know, extenders on their boards and market them and the pricing would be, you know, wildly sky high, uh, which I'd say, sure, but this is this is what competition looks like. This is what a, a free market looks like is everybody gets to go innovate using the building blocks they've been provided. Um, if you truly are trying to grow all of those partners versus constrain them into your way of thinking, you will consider giving them a chance. The flip side of that is supporting it, is what happens when somebody, you know, because the, all these guys are going to come, first thing they're going to say is like, well, how do I connect these up? Can I daisy chain them? Or can mm. I, or do each of them have to be directly connected to the processor? It, what happens if I use up all my CPU PCIe lanes for chipsets and there are no directly attached peripherals? Mm. Like when a user plugs in a graphics card, it's into a chipset and chipset only. And all of the storage and graphics cards and AI accelerators or whatever else they want to plug in go through the multiple layers of chipset connections back to Because that's the what the point of like an X690E yeah. would be is just best practices. Like, hey, right. if you want to make this high-end board, do it this way so some people don't buy one from ASRock that, like you say, has like a latency issue because of where the lanes are going to the graphics card or or just doesn't support a Gen 5 SSD because you've used all, all of those lanes from the CPU. Like, that would really yeah. be the point, to establish best practices so there's consistency. Yes, because ultimately, right, like all of this stuff comes back to whoever's the biggest brand name on the box and who's first, and that's AMD. So even though it's an Azus mm. motherboard or other person's motherboard, or Azrock motherboard, then AMD gets the blame of why did you allow this to happen? And they're going to be fiercely protective of their brand because they've been through the pain of having it trashed, tarnished, set on fire, stomped out, peed upon, and then having to start over again. And that is a long and arduous process that no one wants to repeat. And I don't Mm -hmm. blame them because I lived through it with them. So yeah, you got to guard the brand. You got to guard the identity. You've got to guard um, 
what the definition is of these enthusiast boards. So maybe it comes more from a, you know, you almost need a skunk works project to, mm-hmm. to get it going, right? You need somebody outside of the big four motherboard makers to go say, Hey, this is what I want to build. And I want to go do it. Like it's more likely to come from uh, a top tier OEM or a tier two or tier three um, system designer, like, you know, not a, a Dell or HP or Lenovo, but a tier down from them. Mm-hmm. They design their own motherboards, get them built by uh, a contract manufacturer in Asia. And these are the guys that are going to go learn and find out about it and then come forward and say like, hey, this is actually really good. You should do this. Like, kind of like we saw with um, the motherboard design from mining boards, right? There was mm-hmm. no reference design for that from Intel or AMD. But where did all those designs come from? started off in Asia and some contract manufacturer built them and then everybody figured out how to do it better. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that would be the path. Jessie here doesn't think a lot about her history. All she knows is that before I adopted her, there was a lot less food and a lot less hugs going around. But many of us humans are quite different. At least I know that I am. And that's why I partnered with MyHeritage for this piece of content. MyHeritage is a global service for family history research and DNA testing that is trusted by 90 million users to have their family trees fleshed out. They don't just let you use DNA testing to search through your family's history, by the way. They also let you build timelines and leverage historical documents to piece references and pictures of family members into a tree of where you came from. This includes letting you upload your own pictures and enhance them with AI, which here's one of my mom, by the way, from when she was little, they added some color and it actually looks a lot sharper than the original photo I had. And in all honesty, it seriously took me about five minutes to discover some interesting things. I discovered almost immediately that much of my family came from Prussia in the 1800s, which I always had a hunch about. It was interesting to see that confirmed. And I also learned that one whole side of my family came to Minnesota in the late 1800s, which is of course where I was born, not in the 1800s in Minnesota. And while I don't want to show you my family tree for privacy reasons, I will show you that one of my ancestors actually almost had the same birthday as me as well. In fact, a lot of my ancestors were born in November, just like a lot of my current family members are now. That's just weird. But anyways, you can discover your heritage and support Moore's Law is Dead by clicking in the description for a 14-day free trial. And it also gets you a 50% discount if you keep the subscription after that trial is up. Clicking on that link and starting a free subscription helps this channel a lot. And well, it also helps you learn about your heritage. Support this channel by checking out my heritage at the link below today. And you know, what would go well in that is I don't think a lot of people need 64 cores, but I do think some people wish they could have more than what's available now for a cheaper price. Um, Florida man writes and he says, James, I just want to ask this point blank. In your opinion, how interested is AMD in producing even higher core count desktop chips? Previously, Tom discussed possibilities for an 8-core X3D plus 16-C-core CPU in an upcoming generation. How much weight does AMD place on producing a Halo marketing product versus avoiding risk of low consumer demand or cannibalizing potential threader for sales? Actually, I'm going to raise my hand here and say, I don't think an 8-core X3D plus 16-C-core CPU is going to cannibalize Threadripper all that much considering the difference in PCIe lanes and the fact that Threadripper is just all the way over here. But I, maybe you disagree with that. And, and again, you know, his question, do you think AMD is interested in pushing up core counts sooner rather than later? Mm. So a couple of things I want to talk about there. Um, I think that 
AMD are very interested in maintaining and extending their leadership in the desktop space. They have a very well-run business unit that is intensely intensely focused on that, and they're they're being consistent and executing as best they can. Um, the I think that the what looks like the best desktop segment processor is going to be less about is it you know big cores and little cores or is it the blend of AI cores and graphics cores with CPU cores. We're in the inflection point um, as we come up with some new acronym for an AI-accelerated CPU. So I, th- I think that that's what they're currently looking at, and maybe that's where they're headed. Um, as far as cannibalization goes, I don't believe that there is any such thing. We, I've argued with many people mm. in the industry a lot of people think there is. There's no such thing as cannibalization, right? If you built a product that is so good that it stopped people buying your other products, aren't you glad you did that before your competitor did? You didn't mm. cannibalize anything. You just stopped your competitor from taking your lunch money. You always want to take your own lunch money and keep innovating. You need to tell your own story. You need to talk to your own market your own way. But that's your opinion. You do think there's other people who had positions that you had at Various companies that would say, "Oh no, we have to make sure things don't cannibalize each other." Your your opinion is stop worrying about that and just make something people buy, and then we'll we'll that's it'll become a good problem to have if it sells that well. Yeah, if you're really listening to your market, if you're really understanding what your customers want, then you're going to build the products that they're ready to have at the right time, and you're going to make a ton of money. If you're really worried about if if the game plan is well, I, how long can I ring a milk my current product so that I can, you know, amortize costs and drive down the, uh, the sunk costs and drive up my margins so that I get the most amount of dollars off the table where well, you're an MBA and you should be playing in an Excel file simulator instead of doing real business because you're not actually serving the market, right? Those, the, you're really just an options trader that's scared to use their own money. So get out there and build a product that people want and you, it's a money printing machine, right? And just this is the, the, the point is you can't worry about disrupting yourself. You should worry about somebody else beating you to that disruption. Mm-hmm. Right? You, so we saw it like the case study is AMD versus Intel, mm-hmm. right? As with AMD is ramping up Zen, trying to bring Ryzen to market, trying to bring Epic to market. Everybody's breathlessly watching and 100% forecasting Intel is going to respond. Intel is going to respond. I remember all these comments, by the way, on like Tom's hardware and in the YouTube comments saying after like Zen Plus was out or something, oh, I can't wait to see the secret CPU in Intel's vaults. And I'm like, guys, if they had a secret, they'd have launched it by now. And you just told me, you might point back to me, if they had a secret CPU that could disrupt their own product line, but they were saving it because just in case their competitor did it, they would have launched it. Because you never know when you when there's a new competitor going to come along. Like 2018, who knew that NVIDIA was going to be a trillion-dollar company before AMD, mm-hmm. right? It's Or before Intel. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is the game. You've got to disrupt the market the best way you know how, and along the way, serve your customers, them thinking about them first, and not worry about, well, I could have made an extra $100 million if I delayed this six months. Because you'll be too busy counting the billions. So, and and yeah, the reason you know 
this question was brought up by Florida Man is because I've talked about this a lot, this like potential eight core X3D plus 16 C core product. Cause I, I, this was, I think at this point, at least half a year ago now, um, where I reached out to some people and I'd always heard it was possible. I wanted to double confirm it. If AMD wants to, can they launch up to 32 C cores on AM5 next year? Can they launch eight plus 16? And it was an emphatic. Yes, they can. The IO die works. They could do it. But Every roadmap I've received so far, whether it's showing uh, the versions of, you know, Ryzen that will go into laptop, you know, Dragon Range and that type of stuff, or whether it's showing the embedded server versions of AM5, Granite Ridge, all of them say up to 16 cores. So up until now, all evidence still is, though, that AMD is going to stick with 16 cores next year, unless something wild happens where they have to try to do something near the end of the year. It kind of sounds like you're saying, well, and I want to ask you, do you think they'll stick with 16 cores, number one? Number two, it sounds like you think if they do, it's not because they don't want to cannibalize Threadripper. It, it's simply they don't think people want more than that. Um, well, let me, let me phrase it to you this way. Do you want 16 full cores or 24 kind of cores? That's what um, the perception of the market's going to be. Well, I don't think they are kind of cores. And I think AMD's finally realized they need to start yeah, making yeah. it clear. Cloud cores are real cores. <laughs> you know, this is not e-cores. Right. And, and, and you know, I, I, I can't help but point out, too, I mean, if you have eight big Zen 5 cores, why do you need more? Like, add 16 little cores for the multi-threading performance, and you're good. You're good to go, right? Like I, I, like, I think it's whether or not they... Frankly, my opinion is whether or not they think it's worth sending three nanometer capacity to AM5. I, I really think that's what it's about, personally. Yeah, th there's definitely a uh, prioritization argument to be had. Um, I think that, you know, absent that, though, looking at the desktop market, we, you know, we've already seen the problems of scaling workloads beyond 16 cores. Like, why complicate that with now with scheduler issues, even though Zen C cores are absolutely real cores? They're just lower performance in certain workloads, and they have missing a, a one or two minor features. But it, it's the perception that, oh man, I got to redo all my software. There could be software incompatibilities. And would there be market, that? Because I think it'd be the same scheduling, wouldn't it? It's just C cores are clocked lower, so you send the most important thread to the fastest core, which would also happen to be a Zen five core. I don't see why it would actually do anything to the scheduler um, outside of. I guess some apps literally might not recognize more than 16 cores or threads or something. That'd be the only thing. But I, I, I don't know. And I mean it when I say that. I don't know how often that is a thing. I think from what I've heard from people, it's usually uh, 30, like 64 threads is usually the limit and sometimes 32. So I still mm -hmm. feel like we wouldn't bump up against it that often. Yeah, I know. And you... You know, focusing maybe the threading one isn't that big a concern. I think that the you know, the scheduling and threading is is fine, but there's the, the real problem is there's this fog of war, right? People just don't know. There's so much legacy software out there. There's so much software we just have no idea. So, like, do you want to find that out the hard way? Intel went off and started working on it, but um, do AMD want to follow them down that path when they don't need to, right? Look at look at current lineup of AMD versus Intel. Did having the e-cores help them maintain the same power profile? No. Did it help them catch up on multi-thread performance? Yes. Did it help them win benchmarks? Yes. Did it make the better desktop experience? No. 
So now you've just got twice as much power being used for the same experience. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a great innovation. So much wow, so advanced. Why, why risk putting yourself in that position when you can just leave it alone and let it run? Um, I don't see a lot of upside to the strategy until there's a lot of market pull for it. Um, and it's one of those things where you have to build the tech first so that the software can catch up so that it can be market pool. And that's what's happening, right? Is we're seeing mm -hmm. the cloud optimized cores being deployed, being very, very successful for the hyperscale, the non hyperscale for the cloud providers, right? Cloud optimized workloads. Where do those cloud optimized workloads go is more mobile than in mainstream desktop. So that's why you're seeing it in the APUs, but not mm. in the desktops. Because and to be fair, with Zen 5 Strix, that should go up to 12 cores. They're going to use C cores to get to 12, not to get to 24, and 12 right. is less than 16 still. <laughs> yeah, and that'll be the proof point, right? So we'll, we'll see it come out. So it's back to the classic problem of these um, optimized cores, the C cores, are fantastic for thermally constrained or power constrained environments. And that is either massive data centers or ultra-portable devices like laptops, mm -hmm. but not desktops because it, you know, we're not thermally constrained or power constrained uh, from 45 watts to now 350 watts. That mm -hmm. is not a thing. So you don't have to worry about it. You can well, unless you're Raptor like Refresh, then you are power constrained, it turns <laughs> out, still somehow. <laughs> Fair, fair, yes. Well, you know, you, you, you've <laughs> kind of shown your hand here. I want to ask this question. Benjamin Cannon writes in and says, what are your thoughts on Zen 4C and Zen 4 compared to Intel's PE and now LPE SOC cores? Would it make sense to have CCD chiplets with both standard and dense cores over standard and dense chiplets? Because I think you've, I think I can guess what your opinion is, but how do you feel about AMD's uh, standard and C versus Intel's P slash E slash LPE core strategy. Uh, the, those poor product managers trying to yield that chip, trying to build a portfolio out of it. Oh my God, that is just an, uh, an nth level of complexity that I am very happy to sit on the sidelines mm -hmm. and watch happen. I don't have to try and be part of because, wow. That's that's complex. Uh, at the same time as you're trying to integrate things like graphics and AI and sound and uh, fabrics and all kinds of other things, it's um, they must really believe in the strategy. It's a big bet. It's bold. Um, I I don't know that it's going to pay off. We'll wait and see on that one. But Zen 4, Zen 4C is a really good strategy. Um, I don't think it makes sense to in, to blend them inside a, inside of a chiplet. You blend mm -hmm. it across chiplets. Because it gives you so much more flexibility. And I'm biased, right? Because I use that flexibility along with the team to build Threadripper. If I'd had eight cores and four C cores, what would a Threadripper look like? Would it be as useful? Remember the problems with the 2990WX and the chip mm -hmm. latency and that kind of stuff? How would that have been magnified? Yeah, I, that's, that's what comes to mind when I think about those things. So I would rather have the discrete chiplet um, of one type or another so that you could just blend and mix or whatever you want. And that's the, that's the answer why AMD will probably say it's theoretically possible, but I have no plan to productize because mm -hmm. it's 
you know, you can make the chip, but then everybody's got to do the software work and who's going to sponsor it. And it comes, it comes down to what's the reference, what are the use cases? Like what are the five things that people do on desktop PCs today that would be better off if you had eight Zen cores and then 12 or 16 C cores alongside of it? What would they be? Mm -hmm. Right? Pause as we try to think what they are because we know this, the scaling runs well, out. Well, I mean, I think it'd be just, until you get to over 32, I think it'd just be the same as 16. Uh, it's the same argument as the difference between 12 and 16. It's more. That would be that'd be what you would use right. it for, right? So um, you solve the same problem again more expensively. What do you mean by that? So you've already got 12 and 16 core CPUs, right? And now you can make it so that, hey, look, you've got a 24, but it didn't, didn't get you anything competitively because you're already winning and does it break right anything and that's what i was gonna yeah. bring up next is i guess i have to point out though like and i'm yeah. guess uh, well and i'm guessing you would say this right you would say you know let's say intel launches an 8 plus 32 core arrow lake which i think they should in two years you know so they'll have a 40 core on desktop do you think AMD might still stick with 16 cores or at least not try to match them in core accounts, let's say, because the majority of the desktop buyers don't even care? Like, is that kind of what you're saying, too? Yeah, I mean, we talk about core counts as a proxy for performance and ultimately what the um, the people, the buyers worry about in the 0.1% of the desktop market that get into this level of detail that listen to your podcast that I was a part of when I was a journalist and enjoy all this kind of stuff that I was thinking of when I was trying to come up with ways to, to launch Threadripper and Ryzen as part of that team. I think that um, really comes down to is what does a 8 plus 32 do for a use case? What does it let you do? Right, You've got a massive amount of multi-thread. It's going to be more efficient power consumption i'm not sure it really is more efficient on intel side i think it just allows them to fit more cores in a smaller space yeah it's, it's a, so it's a diary optimization so okay so that's an intel problem that's been solved but not a customer problem that's been solved what customer problem does it solve keeping up with the performance from amd all right but does it do it in the same power are they using the same process technology are they you know remotely close there is it going to be easier for uh, like Adobe going to go, ah, now, finally, I will create versions of my uh, creative cloud on the desktop that scale beyond 16 cores properly. Is that what's going to happen? I, you know, what? <laughs> this is where I get stuck thinking this problem through is, I, instead of trying to solve, like Intel are trying to solve Intel problems mm -hmm. instead of solving customer problems. AMD are not, they're, they're, not solving their, not making any new problems for themselves at the same time as they're treading water, right? Just staying in place and, and waiting for the software and the, the use cases to catch up. Because, you know, there was a brief moment in time where gaming and streaming was super popular and it was all CPU. And mm -hmm. You started off with two PCs and then it went to one PC. And now any desktop with a GPU good enough for gaming can do it all in one go, right? Mm -hmm. So, that use case went away. So what's left? Well, editing the video afterwards. But you know, what's the what's the, the real uplift here? Who's there's 
again, I'm stuck. And I go back to, we need a new use case in the desktop market that's going to leverage those cores. So what could possibly be left? What's a multi-parallel problem? Oh, it's AI and bringing AI onto mm. computing devices. But it's not ready yet. No one needs it yet. No one needs the No one needs it. Yet. People want it. I mean, I think, well, people do need it. They just need it in a different manner than what it's being talked about today. Like um, smart voice assistants mm. really should be um, able to, like you should be able to say to your computer, hey, what was that last notification I got? And it will show it to you. And Okay, cool. And you've got 30 windows open and you're struggling to find them. You should say, hey, switch me to that tab about the Excel macro shortcuts. Mm. And it, right, that is useful AI assistant on the desktop. Is that going to be running on 32 e-cores? Is it going to be running on an integrated AI? Probably be running on an AI engine, <laughs> if we're being honest, though. That's the thing. Right. So, you know, what is, where is the killer app for this level of multi-threading is the question. And that's why you don't see a race to as many cores as possible on AM5 and whatever socket Intel are on, because it, we're in this inflection point. It's about to turn. Right? We've got powerful GPUs. Now it's what's what's the next killer app? We're all, the, the industry is collectively holding its breath. And the answer that everyone wants to say is AI, but everyone's afraid of the hype cycle and the bubble mm-hmm. about to burst and all of that kind of stuff because we saw it with uh, blockchain and we saw it with so many other technologies like stereo 3D. So what do we want? <laughs> <laughs> what do we yeah. want next? Right. So I think absolutely it's, it's a fun thought experiment. And from a technology, as an enthusiast of technology, I would love to see that product as, you know, putting my captain business hat on and saying, how would we then go to market and meaningfully add to the bottom line? Right, drive revenue, increase uh, market share, make AMD the the darling of the industry even more than they are now. I don't think that product does it. Yeah, and you know, I'm also looking at the Amazon best CPU sellers now, which isn't everything, but I think it's a decent snapshot to make this point. You know, I think the number one nail in the coffin of if AMD would launch a 24 core next year. The number one thing that would stop them from doing it is looking at Amazon bestseller right now and going, the number one Zen 4, the number one selling Zen 4 processor is the 7800X3D. What you're telling AMD is you don't want more than even eight cores. You just want eight cores as freaking fast as they can get. And that's all you want. And then, by the way, ahead of that is the 5800X. I see 5600X, 5800X3D, 7600. I'm kind of seeing the argument being that these and, and this is a little different because I remember the 3950X and the 5950X selling pretty god dang well. Is at least it seems in the past couple, past year or two, everyone's kind of stopped racing to get the 16 core as often. It's all about the 8 core. I think what you're basically telling AMD is even if they can make it, it's not what the volume seller is going to be, anyways. Yeah, well, they know that anyway. And what you're seeing is the shift from the early adopter enthusiast voice to the mass market gamers. Mm. Right, who's buying 7800X3Ds? Gamers. Who's buying all those chips you listed? Gamers. They want fast gaming systems. They want the best bang for the buck now more than ever. Right. So what I think AMD should be worried about is what does Intel do down the stack Mm. where they come in at the gaming price point, right? Which when we launched Ryzen, we knew the Ryzen 5 1600 and 1600X were going to be the volume runners. They were going to be the the things that everybody said, wow, 
wow, look at that guy, right? We put the halo out there with the A-Cores, but the Ryzen 5 was the guy that was going to go win the market. Because you look at the competitive matchups, right? You remember Ryzen 7 1800X versus the whatever the top uh, K was at the time. It was a little bit behind in gaming. When you mm-hmm. came down the stack and you look at that i5 versus the 1600, it was dominance, like we see with Threadripper versus you know then Core X and now uh, Xeon W. That dominance permeated through, and you know we've seen a lot of inflation, a lot of changes in the market. That 180, 200 dollars price point has pushed up to 280, 300 dollars now. Mm-hmm. So what happens at the three hundred dollar price point right. is going to be critical for next year. That's what I think that desktop team at both companies is looking at is. How do we win the heart of the market? Because, you know, if you're going to get down to, oh, I disrupt my product line and worry about the beans being bigger on this chart than this chart for my own product line, then it's going to be down to where the volume is. How do I maximize my volume, maximize my margin, put the biggest pile of dollars on the table to show my CEO and say, look here, this is why I'm worth what you're paying me because I put money not just revenue, but margin dollars on the table. So, and, and I was going to skip this question, but now I guess I it, it's probably good to just get it out there. Um, whether or not, right, they increase core accounts at the top of Zen 5 Ryzen, do you think they should boost the amount of cores they have at the other tiers? Compressed Earthblocks writes in and says, how do you guys feel about AMD segmenting its consumer CPUs over the next couple of years. Ryzen 3 feels dead right now, and we haven't seen a per-tier core count increase across the stack for a very long time. So I'm curious, like, even if they made the 16 core some six to $700 thing over here, do you think it's time that they finally make the, what would it be called? I don't know, probably the, it'll probably be called the 96 X, like the 9600X, should that still be six cores or should they give it eight cores for 299 at launch? Ooh, yeah, that's a dangerous one, right? Because that's where you have to go rethink your entire um, brand architecture, what was implied by the product. Right, and if you're not upping core counts on the 950X, doesn't it feel weird if you are at the 600X tier? Right, you're making your your top one more sparse because, okay, you've got a 16, a 12, an 8, a 6, and a 4. Yeah, the 4s have gone away into uh, older technology. That's the opportunity right there. It's, you know, if you catch up on the lower end uh, of CPUs, bring them forward in a few Zen architectures, wow, now there's something to do. So, like, maybe it's, you know, maybe that's a way to differentiate. Is like, what does it look like if I put 8... C cores mm. as an option, right? I do a six core of the uh, regular cores and then eight of the C cores in a Ryzen 5 at 280, 300 bucks. And then I do a full eight if you want real eight cores, quote unquote real, not custom versions, but just differentiating, right? But you want the real eight cores, you go up to the Ryzen 7. Like, does mm. that get you something? Like, what does that market look like? Um, I think the Ryzen. That, that $300 price point still values responsiveness, gaming. They want the, the high clock speed, the, the big fat core. So I think that really the answer is they just crank the clocks. Um, AMD has long put only the highest clocks on the highest tier product for yield. Oh, so, you, so the right. argument you're making is if you were at AMD right now and they said, all right, 
Zen five hits and I'm not confirming it does or doesn't people, but like, let's say Zen five hits 5.9 gigahertz or something. And we have 16 cores. We don't want to go to 24 still. We're not selling three nanometer yields. We could be using with our Epic two gamers. That sounds silly, but should we bring eight cores to the $300 price point from the 400? What you would say is, Hey, can we give the six core a six gigahertz clock speed or something for once? And that'd be the smarter way to go about it is what you're saying, right? Yeah. I'd look at the, the three levers. You've got a clock speed, core count and cash, right? So I would say take clock, core count off the table and just look at cash and clock speed. Right, because that's that's the thing that's got the most meaningful impact for the least amount of disruption in the market of your own stack. Hmm. Just, and we, we're starting to see that, right? We're starting to see whispers of that maybe there's a a three D cache rising fifty five hundred X and so on and so forth. Yeah, it'd be, yeah that, I guess I I have to agree. Like, what would be easier? Um, you know, moving the entire product stack up four to eight cores. Or just giving V cash to the three hundred dollar six core, and what would gamers want? Oh, I I think I think a ninety six hundred X three D for three hundred bucks would get pretty good reviews, if I had to guess. Right. Look at what the Amazon top seller is. What's the price point? Where did it take off? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. You, it's almost like how do I sell a uh, a cheaper chip at three hundred bucks so I can make more money instead of taking my four hundred dollar chip down. Put it on sale. I just put one and put it in there and leave it there. Run, done. Yeah, I think you've convinced me. That's funny. Like, and, and <laughs> we don't know if AMD will do it. You know, we'll see. No, but pure speculation. The, but the smarter thing to do, I, I have to agree. Two ninety nine, ninety six hundred X three D. Not two ninety nine. Now we're giving you eight cores for less money because they don't probably want that more than they would just want that extra twenty bucks it takes to throw the V cache die on there or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bring space into any room with the Galaxy Projector. This device will light up any room with countless rotating stars and colorful nebulas that you can easily control with the included smartphone app or even Google Assistant or Alexa. It has fully customizable colors. You can adjust rotation speed and brightness, and you can also set automatic on and off timers. If you're interested in brightening up your universe and supporting Moore's Law is Dead, go to galaxylamps.co slash M-L-I-D to get your Galaxy Projector while it's on sale and create your own universe. Just clicking on that link in the description helps the channel a ton, and you can save money right now during their sale as well. So check out Galaxy Lamps today. Well, okay, let me pivot here then to talking about the Intel side of this. So just to set the stage for kind of this conversation I'm going to set up here intel raptor lake refresh you know 14th gen that's on desktop right now i don't know honestly this thing seems like a complete dud on release day i've never seen a new release from one of these companies not be one of the best like the best seller that's absolutely crazy to me even if it's not great even rocket lake sold in the top spot i believe on release day or at least close and at the same time, Meteor Lake doesn't seem that revolutionary in mobile right now. And I mean, the way I, it was crazy. An OEM, I, of course, I won't say which OEM this person works for, but pretty high up there said that they think of Meteor Lake the same way they thought of Whiskey Lake, which is to say it's better than its predecessor, but it's not really much more than a refresh. 
which I actually liked Whiskey Lake, but Meteor Lake's supposed to be this revolutionary architecture. If you've got them comparing that to Whiskey Lake, I don't think that's what was intended by this expensive tiled chip. And I mean, from what I'm hearing, you know, Meteor Lake, Raptor Lake Refresh, this is all Intel has until early 2025. And AMD should be poised to launch Zen 5, which with at least 15% better performance per core, maybe 25%, we'll see. But, you know, standard performance uplift. And then they can have Vcash models. They're going to go to 192 cores in server next year, 12 cores in mobile. And, and again, Intel doesn't have anything new, really, un, outside of, I guess, Granite Rapids and server until early 2025. How do you see Intel's position? I mean, how are you feeling about how these companies are competing? And there's just a part of me that's thinking maybe AMD is about to walk away with a massive part of the server market. I mean, laptop market in addition to server next year. And I'm not, I'm not sure if Intel can take that anymore. <laughs> um, I, I don't have any worries about Intel. I think that they're going to be just fine. I'm not worried about them going anywhere, away anywhere. But um, you know, Meteor Lake is a, is a, I, it's a very interesting architecture. I like it. I think it's going to be um, appreciated by the people that do buy it. I think it's going to be a battle of marketing investments and sell-ins. So when you're hearing from um, you know, the people who are trying to integrate these into designs and sell them on, that they, that they don't think much of it, then that means that they haven't got a really good pitch, right? So I would say that that is a sell-in marketing problem. Um, I, I don't... I think that this is going to be a big year for AMD on the, on the laptop side. They are going to continue to rise. Like, if you look at how client PC adoption went for AMD, the desktop was an easy home run. Mm -hmm. The laptop never went as well, right? Because Zen was more challenged in that environment, those TDPs. Um, and they fixed those, every complaint, every challenge, every question AMD has answered in that market now, at the same time as Intel are trying to do something new. I think that's a natural hesitation point for these OEMs to say, like, you know, AMD is executing. They've been living up to their name. I've uh, haven't had to, you know, they've built trust. They've spent money. They've brought in new people to help accelerate my business. I've got the support. Intel have been dialing back at the same time, right? So there's uncertainty. They, they people. They naturally, you know, predict forward of like, oh, you know, just how bad is this going to get? Is this going to go all the way down to, you know, five percent market share like AMD had you know, nearly ten years ago, or is this? Is this <laughs> I doubt five. No, I don't think Intel is <laughs> going to go to five percent. But I think it'd be really exactly. bad if they went to even like fifty because their margins are so much lower than AMD's right now. Their entire company is built to be an 80% market share or more company. And if they get pushed down to 50%, well, they have low margins. I don't know. I, I, it's, I, I never thought Intel would get battered this hard. You know, let me just say that. Like, it and it's a testament to AMD, to be fair. Uh, absolutely. To AMD, to, in, to NVIDIA, to everybody who's putting pressure. To on Apple, AMD. yeah. Yeah, Apple. Everybody who's putting pressure on them, and it's a testament to Intel to how they're responding to it. They're you know they're still making money. They still have massive cash flow. They still have you know huge revenue quarters. That you know I remember when <laughs> I remember AMD when we were talking about wow we might make uh, two billion 
revenue <laughs> this year. <laughs> and then Intel would be like, yeah, we donated that much for the advancement of minorities in our company. It was like, holy crap, that's how much bigger that company is and how much better they're doing. So I think it's, it's, it's a really um, tough moment for Intel, uh, but it's not as tough as everyone thinks it is. Same as with AMD when everyone was counting them down and out. Um, but you know, Intel has the advantage of uh, a lot of expertise, a lot of experience, a lot of people who want to see them succeed and continue to succeed. So there's, they've got the backing of so many different programs from the Chips Act, from other uh, contracts they already have. They're, they're going to be just fine. But yeah, we're going to see uncharted territory for their uh, business optimizations, I think, is a good way to say it. But so, yeah, you think you know, they're not going out of business and and they're still going to make the things you think they're going to make in three years from now. But there's still probably a lot more restructuring that's going to probably need to happen. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, well, I mean, any every tech company right now is restructuring. They're all adjusting to the new opportunities, the horizon. For some companies, that's portrayed in a negative light because they're saying, oh, look at the the slip in revenue, the public loss of share. For other companies, they're saying, well, you know, they see a big opportunity coming. They're preparing for it. Let's go get ready and grab some more share. It's upside. It's the same activity. It's the same process going on. So it's, I think it's, um, I think Intel's roadmap will change because they have to prove and reprove to everybody they can execute to what they say they can do. So it's a, a say-do statement. Just say what I'm going to do, do it, and then under-promise, over-deliver, over which is hard for Intel. It wasn't their <laughs> DNA for a very long time, but I think it is now. And that's that's going to be the, the thing that really drives them back into everybody's uh, Wall Street's good graces. You know, There's still a lot of people buying their tech that think it's great, it works really well. So mm-hmm. there's we, you don't see... Um, the forums flooded with, I bought this Intel system and it's horrible. Unless it's ARC. (laughs) ARC exception, but it seems like they've handled that problem. Um, Max Eliza writes in and says, let's say you're given full access to Intel CPU and GPU technology with Intel's current manufacturing costs and economics. What client and enthusiast product lineups would you create with this technology? And what niches would you choose to compete in that you don't think Intel is really competing in right now? Oh, that's a great question. So on the on the market segments, the niches, I wouldn't. I would go after main uh main heart of the market, gaming, uh office productivity, that kind of stuff, just because it's the uh the right thing to do to bring the company back. Sorry, my dogs are attacking me. Um, there's a ton of, um, you know, the chase, the niche to fill the revenue gaps is a really, uh, self-defeating strategy because you can never do enough to get enough revenue out of them to compensate for everything else. Right. It's the 80, 20 rule. Mm -hmm. Do what gets you your 80% and ignore the 20. So don't go after the 20, don't go after the niche, go after the 80. So if I'm looking at the the products and stuff, then I'm going to, like I like Meteor Lake. I think I'll probably rebalance some of the really the the designs and stuff. Get a little bit more of the big CPU heavy, but at uh, lower. Um, the, the challenge is, you know, the, the technology, the process technology, right? We've they've got to wait and see to see if they've solved the power issues. If they mm-hmm. haven't solved the power issues, then there's not a lot you can do. Play, play the waiting game and try yeah. to 
try to wait and see what's coming over. So I think I'd I'd start trying to build um, products that were really good for what people want to do versus chasing the headline of Intel beats AMD, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, and you would say an example of that is like Raptor Lake, right? Like they wanted to have that 5% win and the thing uses 400 watts, so no one wants it. Yeah. I mean, I think people want it, but they're just... It's not it's even in the top not. ten sellers. It's it's the, I, I've 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 been I've never seen a dud like this in a new yeah, generation. A, there's a very few small amount of people that want it, um, but it's it's the you know that one's for the fans, for the diehards, for the died in the wool enthusiasts who love Intel and Intel can do no wrong. Um, that's that's okay. You're allowed to make those products. Um, you just can't. It can't be your primary main message. You got to go mm. out there and say, "Hey, yeah, we we did this at the top end and pros and cons, but here in the heart of the market, I win." So going back to you know, what do you do if you're AMD for that three hundred dollar price point? What do you do if you're Intel? Right, you're going to have to go in there and and really hammer home like we are the gamers CPU. We've got the right technology. We've got the right influencers in the industry with the software development team, with relationships with the platforms. You know. Um, really hammer down, you know, use your advantage to get the, the cost down, win on price, win on performance, win on, in you know, some AAA games that are super optimized. It goes back to classic um, Intel core strategy of, opti- you know, seeding 100,000 developers with uh, gaming boxes and say, you, you make your game on this and you make it work beautifully and, you know, there's all kinds of upside for this for you. you know, Am I crazy? Shouldn't the i5 14600K be eight big cores and four little cores, not six big cores and eight? Wasn't the whole point of the i5, this is the amount of cores you need to get everything done and the i7 has the extra threads? I'm wondering, uh, this just uh, this wasn't planned. I'm just curious if you what you think about that segmentation because, you know, again, and I don't know what percent yields they have. For all I know, they have to make, and this is probably the truth, they have to make the i5 six big, eight little, because that's the yields dictate the i5 can be at that level of volume. But I can't help but go, if anything, the i5 should be eight big cores and that's it. And it's the i7 that should be eight plus whatever. Like, I don't really understand why there's more little cores than big cores on the i5 if that's meant for gaming, because, well, it's losing by 20% to the 7800X 3D and some averages because it's got all these little cores the mid-range doesn't want. Yeah. It's not a yield problem. It's a product segmentation. It is. You don't think issue. it's because of yields that they segmented? No, it's because they don't want to devalue uh, in their minds. They don't want to say an Intel, Intel eight cores are worth AMD six cores. Right. Oh. They don't want to, that they don't want to give AMD that ammunition because you know, AMD would pounce on that in a heartbeat, but I would a hundred percent do that. And I'd say, doesn't matter whether you think one of our cores are one to one or not, because I'm giving you X amount of gaming performance and X amount of efficiency and all these other features in here. I tell my own story, right? Intel are trapped in the competitive definition trap, right? They, they define their products based on what they think the competitive matchup will be instead of what does the market want at this price point and how can I deliver that? Hmm. All right. So actually, I want to pivot the conversation now. Um, Max Lizer actually writes in again, and he says, Hi, James. Good to see you back on the show. Last time you were on, 
The RTX 4000 series and RDNA 3 had respectively just launched and just been announced amid heavy criticism of their segmentation and pricing. At the time, you seem to defend some of the controversial choices made by both companies, um, saying things like the $900 4080 12 gigabyte, which doesn't even exist now, that was before they even unlaunched it, by the way, uh, simply gives NVIDIA room to maneuver in pricing. Do you stand by that today? And how would you evaluate the way these companies have navigated this past GPU generation? Even if hindsight is 2020, shouldn't they have changed how they formatted their lineups to be a bit more consistent and aggressively priced in some segments? Um, you know, I, I don't remember as defending them so much as saying as I understood. Explaining well, them, I, yeah. And explain them. But yeah, I mean, obviously that was, I think I made the statement at the time that I didn't like it. I still don't like it. So yes, they should absolutely have, have changed. Um, I think that the, the writing was on the wall for where the market was going to go and for the reactions that were going to come and launchings notwithstanding. So yeah, that, uh, I, I think it just shows you how dominant NVIDIA are, that they can weather that storm and come out the other side and everybody's like, oh, well, never mm -hmm. mind. Well, and I want to point this out too. Um, this really stuck in my head. Um, there were two... I thought really, really interesting answers that stood out to me in the last episode you were on. Um, at the time, there was all of this discussion about these free DDR5 deals going on at Micro Center with Zen 5, uh, with Zen 4, and what's going on with like, why did AMD charge this much for that and that much for that? Wasn't it obvious this wouldn't sell well? Um, and you said that at the end of the day, AMD probably suspects that until DDR5 pricing comes down and until motherboards have arrived by boat with cheaper shipping, they can't do anything to improve their competitiveness. So the free DDR5 deals were probably started as a case study to see if DDR5 is cheaper, are people going to buy Zen 4? The interesting thing is, is buy now. Zen 4 is wildly outselling Intel now that DDR5 is cheaper and motherboards aren't as expensive anymore. But that, by the, way, the other thing you said is I asked you at the time, we thought they'd be called the 7900 XT and 7800 XT. Now we know it's the 7900 XTX and the 7900 XT. You said what AMD should do, because I, I said, and I actually re-listened to it. I said, I see two options, $900 and $1,200. You just charge the same as NVIDIA. And the other option is like 1700 And you said they should go 1800 because if they did that, they're saying we don't need more than $1,000 for a graphics card, but we're going to charge $800 for a 20 gigabyte one because we know that's fair. AMD, AMD ended up charging $900 for this card that you thought should be $800, and it didn't sell until it went below $800. So I just like to give you a small round of applause on that one there because it just to show you, you were definitely doing something at AMD when you worked there. I just want to point out. Um, but I, I'm just kind of curious what you think about how all of this has developed. And like, do you think these companies have learned their lessons? Like, do you think AMD has learned? I, I honestly think they, I'll just say, it, I think AMD got so far up their own ass playing 3D chess against <laughs> NVIDIA that they forgot it was stupid to have a $1,900 card next to each other because the 4080 gigabyte broke their brain and they thought that would make sense to price it against, except neither of them sold well and now you just both lost. But yeah, anyways, I wonder if you think they've learned their lesson on that and if you think they'll, take some pretty big lessons away from how Zen 4 didn't sell, then sold well, and how they priced Zen 5. Yeah, for sure. I think um, 
Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Well, first, thanks for the props. Appreciate it. It's always nice to be right. I'm glad that this time I was actually recorded being right, so I actually have proof that sometimes <laughs> I am right. <laughs> but yeah, it's. Um, I think they're going to take a lot of steps on that, and they're going to keep monitoring. The, you know, the problem is, is that we have the buying cycle driven around um, when some of the big retailers um, you know, go to market and when they do their sales. So the technology introductions don't always line up with them. So you have to see about what you know what market you're in um you know if you're inside amd or nvidia or intel and you go in front of everybody and they say what's your pricing strategy what are the margins it drives and you show them a you know, hundred dollar difference for blah 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 drives this margin this, this and then someone says well shouldn't you drop that price no one's going to be like oh yeah you should definitely drop the price they're going to say no let's try it out because we can always drop the price later right it's never you can't increase prices and you know except for Seen, I say that having just gone through the massive price increases. Of the well, you can't increase prices, but you can launch the 3080 12 <laughs> gigabyte with no MSRP. You can certainly do that. Yes, exactly. You can you can make up all kinds of craziness to go along with that. Um, but yeah, it's. I, I think they did take some lessons from that. You know, they're monitoring both of them are going to be monitoring the markets closely to see how they're. Uh, the consumer market is, is really looking. They're going to be watching, you know, certainly the financial reports. We just had what was supposed to be the biggest spending Black Friday ever in the U.S. Hmm. That's um, a pretty big which, signal to them, yeah. It is, but it's the wrong kind, right? That's people are people have been waiting all year to spend, and they're also seeing higher prices than ever before. So it's like it's like when the new movie, like when Avatar 2 comes out and it gets a higher grosser box office than that first one did. Well, yeah, the ticket prices are twice. Of course it did, right? So <laughs> what did what happened between a year uh, so ago? So biggest and spend, now? not greatest volume, yeah. Right, yeah, they're going to look at the dollars and try to size the market that way because that's the way all the financial, everyone's spinning it is look at all the money flowing around instead of, well, did people actually buy more individual units of things or did they buy less but more expensive things or did they buy more of cheaper things there's actual analysis that needs to be done so you know if the consumer market is coming back as we think it is for a q1 q2 um setting up for a uh, a nice healthy um back to school in q3 of 2024 then that looks like a a prime opportunity to dial in the pricing pretty close to where it is now, maybe a little bit lower, but mm-hmm. not too much. So you're not going to see the, you know, the, the precipitous fall off the cliff that they saw in, in 2023 for consumer products, right? Where you know, Q1 to Q2 was you know, 84% down or whatever. Some of the headlines were year on year because of the, the changes in buying and spending, but um, we won't see it go back up 84%, right? Mm. So, it's gonna, they're going to try and get some traction. Everybody loves to see more than 10%. Um, we'll see what, what that comes in. But I think there's a lot of, a lot of thinking going on of like, we, we've got to get this right because Meteor Lake's coming, new NVIDIA GPUs are coming, new AMD, new, everything, everything's new coming again. It's an inflection point in the market. And we've got this, you know, the specter of the, sitting on the shoulder of who's got the best AI solution, Qualcomm, mm. coming to market with their laptops. So everybody's going to be very, very, um, I think, very, very reactive to 
wait and see who goes first and puts a number out there and then react to that. Yeah, I guess. Do you think that there's a decent chance they're going to misread some of these signals, though? Because and and to like what would be an example, like like I don't know, AMD comes. Let's say let's make a mediocre outcome. Let's say Zen Five comes out twenty percent better than Zen Four, and they try to charge like nine hundred dollars for the sixteen core. And I'll just promise AMD that's not going to fly. Like, do you think it's likely? And I'm not saying it would be AMD, but like a company is going to misread recent sales and do that early next year? Or do you think there's more of a chance that they're going to look at what's happening now and go, it's good, but not great. Let's let's just be more aggressive to really try to keep the momentum going. Yeah, I think it's the second one, right? The, I don't think there's going to be a huge misread. No one's going to read it perfectly. If you read it perfectly, you'll be wrong, right? But, right? You know, you're not going to be working at one of these companies. You'll be out there uh, doing your own thing. But Yes, yeah, so there's going to be uh, some misreads, some miscalculations. It's the nature of it. But I, I think they're going to be conservative. They're going to err on the side um, of of caution. But you know, this is this is where big gains are made, right? When you're mm. you know, Formula One, I think it was Ayrton Senna said it's very hard to overtake on a dry track. In the wet, you can overtake ten people. Mm-hmm. So because yeah. other people make mistakes, they go slow. They wait and see. So if you're bold, if you know your strategy, if you're confident, if you know what your team can do and you go to the exact limit of where the conditions are, you're going to win. You're going to come out in front, and that's the big if. So who, who can dial it in as closely as, as that is going to be the race, right? You know, historically, we've seen NVIDIA do that best. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, again, the chase. Well, it's that time of year again, the time of costumes, family, friends, and of course, also eating lots of unhealthy candy and food. It's also simultaneously usually when most people are crunching to finish up the work they need to for the year before the holidays. And while you're crunching, that usually means you're also likely to eat other unhealthy foods in between those bouts of eating unhealthy food with family and friends. Well, that's of course, unless you eat Vite Ramen. This piece of content is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a healthy, tasty, and shelf-stable food crafted by an American startup that offers tons of options for eating healthy, like their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice, including new flavors like Radiant Crab Roux, and also their Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break that's sometimes away from home. Or they also have other healthy products like their Nano Boost Powder that makes any food at least a little healthy. Click on the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off a variety of products from Vite Ramen, like special bundles for Moore's Law's Dead Fans, Raw Nudes if you want to make up your own recipes with their noodles, and other food products, powders, and utensils, and more. They really are a plucky small startup that has been really good to Moore's Law is Dead for years now, and I also genuinely like their product. So if you want to support Moore's Law is Dead, try Vite Ramen, and you know, just clicking on that link in the description really helps a ton, but buying their product and using the Afco Broken Silicon, of course, helps the channel even more. Try Vite Ramen today. Well, that's perfect, because I did want to bring up NVIDIA Super. Um, I put out a leak recently that's talked about how from what I'm being told, the 4080 Super could be 999 and be like 8% faster than the 4080. So if you think about it, that's like, you know, $200 less and faster. There's a lot of people that are like, NVIDIA would never do this, but 
I think the major argument for why they might definitely do this is there's just something about 999 that looks better than anything else above that. I'm curious if you think that's enough, because what I've heard is obviously NVIDIA is still outselling AMD on average. Of course they are. They have much more market share overall. But like in the low end, they're doing fine. And I think the 4070 is doing pretty dang well now. Uh, but the 4080 itself really <laughs> was one of the worst selling 80s they've ever had, like shockingly low for, for NVIDIA. And I'm wondering if you think doing that like 30% price to performance adjustment will work to finally start out selling the XTX with the 4080, or if there's something about, and this is just a question I have, do you think there's something about putting an 80 at a thousand that people will just reject again because it's called the 80 and we don't want to spend over a thousand. It has to be a TI or it has to be a 90 or a Titan or we're not spending over a thousand because, well, you brought up racing. I'll bring up Talladega Nights. If you're not first, you're last. And I don't want to be, you know, paying over a thousand dollars for anything that isn't the fastest. I, I'm wondering if you think, because I think the 4070 Ti Super and so on and so forth down the stack will sell pretty well. But I, I just wonder if there's something about charging a thousand dollars for an eight, an eighty class that people just don't like on principle. Oh man, yeah, I have strong opinions here because you know I, I. I I had several generations of 80 class cards that I couldn't afford that were in the 300 range, right? So mm -hmm. I remember um, seeing the the 280 and 380 and 480 and just be like, man, those are such great cards, but they're $500. I can't, I can't afford them. And now they're over a thousand. It just, it just still breaks my brain. It's, it's un inconceivable. Right. So I, I don't, I think that the right strategy for them, you know, if they put a super at nine nine nine, they'll you know they'll basically be learning the AMD lesson. Um, if they put it at eight hundred, they'll be learning the uh, what I was proved right lesson, right? So I, I don't think they'll go as low as eight hundred. They should go to nine 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 for all the reasons you describe, um, and they should. It, it really kind of depends on how much inventory they've got downstream on forty eighties, mm. seventies, etc., because um, they're going to have to push those through with some acceleration funds to clear them out. If they're, if they're light on downstream inventory and the people that they care about are not holding a lot of money tied up in them, then yeah, they can do it. If they've got, if they're not willing to spend uh, and accelerate those sales to discount them and get them through, then it's going to be a problem. The right move, in my opinion, if I, what I would be advocating for is let's flush the channel, get some, get really high, uh, get a good sale going for two, three months, stack drop the you know the existing stuff, and then bring in the super at uh, forty eighty super at uh, nine nine nine. Uh, I'd probably be arguing for eight nine nine, maybe mm -hmm. as introductory pricing on a founders, and let the uh, partners go to nine 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 for their overclocks and FTWs and all the other acronym editions. But yes, I would I would say that would be the right strategy. Yeah, because I think. I think there's a solid chance that what, what, at least what I was told is what it sounds like is the 4070 Ti Super, what a name, uh, will have 16 gigabytes and be like 10% weaker than the, maybe 15% weaker than the 4080. Uh, and then that should be 799 with 16 gigabytes though, or maybe 850. And, you know, that that's a pretty aggressive adjustment at that spot already. But I just, I, I don't know that there's, I think that they've just been so out into the stratosphere out to lunch on 4080 pricing that 
they basically can't go lower than nine nine nine, right? Or and I'd almost make the argument that like, well, whatever, just sell more forty seventy Ti supers and next gen make it better or something. Like, as you've, I, I don't know how you adjust something down that much in price. It's already two hundred dollars is already quite a lot, you know. It is and it isn't, right? Two hundred dollars from five hundred to three hundred is a massive percentage change, right? But twelve hundred to nine 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 is not that big a percentage. Mm-hmm. So, and you're also into the era of like, well, you know, what are the people at the heart of the market, the gamers that are buying i5s and Ryzen 5s, what are they pairing it with, right? Um, you want to get them to spend just a little bit more on your new card, mm-hmm. not a lot more. You're not going to get them to go an extra $400. You're going to get them to go 100 150 maybe 200 and that's where that marketing uh, fund was coming. He flushed 4070s down at 4060 price, 4060 Ti pricing for a while. Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of happy gamers. And everybody who missed that goes, oh, man, what can I do? And then you bring in the 4070 Ti Super Ultra Jensen Edition for you know, 100 bucks. What you're describing is, I believe, what they're doing. If you look on Newegg right now, the 4070, despite never getting a price cut, seems to all of a sudden be below 550 with all partners. I can I can assure yep. everybody watching this, it's because NVIDIA is charging partners less for those bomb kits. It is not because they just decided to take a loss on all of their 4070s. I do think they're flushing that out now before they bring out the Super in January. Yeah, absolutely. It's all sellout-based, right? They're, they're telling these guys, I'll give you a coupon at the end of the quarter if you... Uh, if you go flush out this much inventory. So mm-hmm. It's all transactional, right? You don't get to get the money and not sell the cards. You have to sell the card, then you get the money. So just flushing through like that, they're they're putting it in, and that'll obviously puts pressure on the Radeon side too. Well, speaking of Radeon, I do want to bring up RDNA 4 here. Um, Cole Addict writes in and he says, on the topic of RDNA 3's legacy, how important do you think it was for AMD to get an early foot in the door with MCM GPUs with the 7900 XTX before the competition? Do you also see it aging like DLSS where everyone saw the first version of it and it seemed bad to useless, but then over time it improved to be an important fumble that allowed them to build upon it? into something that was hard for the competition to compete with. And I think it's an interesting comparison, but it's not a bad one. It's like DLSS, everyone was like, this is your magic AI tech. It looks worse than just resolution scaling. And over time, oh no, this is like the selling point of NVIDIA, I would honestly argue. And, you know, the 7900 XTX is not bad and it's outsold the 4080, but I don't think that's saying a whole lot with the 4080 not being very good. And do you think especially with rumors, and I've heard this myself, that AMD is unlikely to launch an MCM chip with RDNA 4, that they're just going to go like a 5700 XT situation with mid-range and lower, which means monolithic. Like, doesn't it look odd that AMD went to chiplets with graphics cards, and the first time they do that, the next gen doesn't use chiplets? Do you think this was still a good decision for Radeon to go with chiplets for the 7900 XTX that they're going to build upon, or... Do you think maybe it was a mistake and they did it too soon? Obviously, they'll have to go MCM eventually, but do you think it was too soon? No, I don't think it was too soon. I think it worked um, okay. I think they achieved their objectives, learned a lot. I think that the follow-up um, is, is going to be like following the 80-20 rule, go after the heart of the market. They're, they're dialing in their approach. Um, like you said, everyone's going to go chiplets for GPUs. No one really knows where the chiplet core um, 
breakdown point is, right? Like for, for AMD, eight cores and a chiplet for CPU cores worked out really well, right? That, that, that was the right choice. Are they going to expand that to 16? Uh, I don't think so, right? I don't see that going, but eight's working well there and they can scale it uh, for a number of different products. What is that? What is the equivalent of eight CPU cores on the GPU mm-hmm. side? We don't know yet, right? Because the architectures are changing, the interconnects are adapting, the workloads keep shifting. Because even though gaming itself is relatively stable, we've had DirectX 12 for a long, long time now, very few point revisions. All the innovations are happening around running AI workloads and post processing and super scaling and you know, DLSS, FSR, all that kind of stuff. Um, additional compute on those uh, chiplets at the same time. Um, so we don't really know, I don't think anybody really knows where the breakpoint is. Do you want 32, 64, 96, 5,000? Mm-hmm. No one knows how to break that uh, down into chiplets yet. Um, so the experiment of where it's going to be is is going to be augmented by software over time and more workload analysis. But it's it's really hard right now because there are so many changes and innovations in the in the workload. Right? The CPU is easy to break down because CPU workloads haven't really changed mm-hmm. in twenty years. They're very static. Uh, GPU workloads are getting to be more static, but the AI uh, based workloads are just evolving in months. So whenever whenever a guy team sits down and say, okay, here are the workloads that we want to break down and understand and put into, uh, make, optimize our architecture for. By the time they've done the work to optimize it and they go back and look at it, they've got two new versions of it and they've changed things. So it's, um, I don't, I don't see that as a failure on AMD's part. I see it as a key learning for them. It's an investment for the future. It just kind of, kind of sucks to be the, the person that bought the card and was experimented upon to find that out about. Yeah, because my impression is that AMD's initial um, plan with like the RDNA 3 design was, hey, we've got the MCDs down. We can put any GCD in it. And moving forward, it's going to be like Zen 2 to Zen 5. Same general IO die that we innovate on. Same organization with GCD in the middle. And, you know, it might have growing pains, but we can just drop a three nanometer GCD into these MCDs if we want to next gen. And when I hear that something called uh, Navi 4C, which I think is just one of several code names for the same thing, actually, um, was canceled, you know, I, I think there's something going on where AMD goes, maybe this idea of six MCDs and a GCD isn't the Zen 2 thing we wanted. Maybe we need more time, and we learned some things, maybe we need more time to decide how to make the general layout look for the next five years. Because I think what AMD wants to do, it takes a lot of money to design these hard designs for different chiplets. I think what they want to do is figure out what the Zen 2 layout is for a graphics card and not change it besides architecture and node for five years straight, just like they do with Zen 2. My suspicion is they looked at RDNA 3 and they said this wasn't quite good enough to keep using this design. And the crazy one is also not quite good enough. That That's my suspicion. I wonder if that's what you think is going on. If RDNA 4 is monolithic only and mid-range only, like they're just 
taking a beat and redoing the overall layout. You know, one of the, one of the things that um, AMD has done very, very well is put together long-term roadmaps for technology and then break into sections, those roadmaps. So, you know, they originally started off with like a, like an SOC roadmap, Zen, Zen 2, Zen 3, Zen 4, uh, which translated into Epic and Ryzen. But then they're applying that to not only uh, SOC design, breaking into uh, multi-chiplets and disaggregated die, but also iterating in the IO die and in the interconnects and in the graphics and now the AI engines. So right now I think that it's about the integration of Xilinx into AMD all that IP, all that, in, uh, all those people um, coming in—that's a, a you know, that's a big thing to swallow, and it's going to impact the roadmap. So they're moving resources around based on uh, where the focus is going and how they can best support those different markets. So I don't see it as you know just a pure oh RDNA three wasn't good enough. I see it as here's what we mm. need to do for this market over here, over here, over here, over here. And then where do we prioritize these things? What do we do that our finite resources enable us to keep competing and moving forward in those markets? So I think this is a natural consequence of, uh, of that kind of discussion. And any changes to architecture are really market-driven. They talk AMD have very different uh, conversations with customers than other tech companies do, right? Where the traditional uh, mechanism is, I invented this cool thing. You should adopt it because it's awesome. Here, tell me how much it is to help me make you develop it for this. Then we'll go sell it together to the market. Whereas AMD is much more collaborative and saying, I'm planning on doing these things. What would you want to do with it? Tell me where your roadmap is. What are the problems you're trying to solve? digesting that, bringing that into a product. And that's what's driving the success because it's so much more collaborative. It's so much more uh, invested in customer success and solving a customer problem. Now, where the challenge is, if you're a graphics enthusiast right now, you'll be wondering, hmm, which voice is getting to the operations of AMD as the voice of graphics and gaming people everywhere? Is it coming mm-hmm. from Microsoft and Sony from the consoles of what they want? Is it coming from uh, the you know the, the DIY channel market of saying you know we wanted better graphics card that did X, Y, and Z? Is it coming from the technology leaders inside the company? Where is who's representing me into that? Right, you can you got to wonder where that's going and stuff. So I think that that's part of what we're seeing right now is uh, an adjustment of balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're saying it kind of like the glass um, half full, you know, way of looking at it, which is, you know, it's not a, just a matter of AMD tried something out and it didn't work out. Maybe they saw a way of doing things that they didn't before that would work way better and they don't want to waste time on a version of some old thing that that is something that won't be what they do in the future. And they didn't know about it in the past. It's not that the old way wouldn't have worked. You think maybe they just saw a better way of doing things and there's more important things to also do at the same time yeah absolutely they're pathfinding and they're balancing resources now the interesting thing is i've still heard recently that there is a chance they could still launch a big card if they really wanted to because nothing would really stop amd from launching 
24 gigabit per second memory on the same MCDs with like a four or three nanometer GCD in the middle. It's just a whether if they want to. I don't think they are though. Like that was kind of like I don't know. I won't get into where I heard that could still happen, but like I, I guess. I guess I'm curious what you think about like AMD's mindshare too with RDNA 4 because it sounds like you also are under the impression that RDNA 4 will likely be mid-range and lower only. Like, I mean, how do you think AMD's brand is doing and do you think that's a blow to their brand if they don't go for the high end next year? Do you think it is or it isn't? Um, I don't think it's a blow to the brand simply because they took the hit when Intel entered the market and all they did was take AMD market share, right? No one stopped buying NVIDIA GPUs. They just said, oh, I could buy an Intel GPU instead of an AMD GPU? Sure, let me, like, that was a, a learning moment for AMD. And I think they're resetting and coming back on that and saying, like, oh, well, that actually told us where the problem was, is it's not competing at the high end. It's in the meat of the market is where I need to focus my efforts. Now, going to your question, do I think they're only going to go mid-range? Um, yeah, honestly, I don't know. I, I've, I've kind of heard things that say all different ways, right? I I would hope that they would do a full stack, um, mm-hmm. but they haven't. They haven't done a what I would consider a full stack. You know, from a hundred and fifty dollar card to a top tier, um, you know, better than everything card in a long, long time. They've always picked two, three dies to build or product combinations that you know, five or six different variants that go off and they and they cover a lot of market share. So you wouldn't I, I say think, RDNA two is a full stack? Uh, no, because it didn't go down that low, right? I mean what was the lowest price RDNA two card? Well it's the sixty five hundred XT was sixty four bit. Granted it was two hundred dollars, but yeah. mining market, I mean, that's why it was two hundred. I don't know any miners that bought that for mining, but right. No, but that was the idea is they were like here's a four gigabyte card miners can't use and it's the 6500 XT. You know, they went from a 64 bit to a 520 millimeter squared 256 bit. Now, I, th- I don't know if this is what you were thinking, but the only counter argument I can make to what I said, I think, is well, maybe it just turned out so well that they sold a 256 bit card for, <laughs> you know, $1,000. But I, wouldn't you not say like the 6900 XT down to the R, actually down to the RX 6400? Well, I think there's a 6300 too. That's a full stack, though, isn't it? Mm. Looking back at it now, yes. At the time, I didn't feel like it because they were delayed on the introduction, I guess. It took a long time. Oh, because it didn't all happen at the same time is what you're saying. Not even at the same time, but in the same quarter, right? Like, I understand why all these companies come in onesie-twosie products at a time to capture the the enthusiasts and the early adopters that want the best, and they just want to get people to use FOMO to convince themselves to spend more than they really ought to. But I, I think that they took a lot longer than that on RDNA 2 than what I would like to have seen myself. So that's interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is what you really, what you, if you were in charge, what you really want AMD to do is have confidence and come out and go, you know, RX, whatever it's called, RX 8300 to 8950 XT, all launching over the next like five months. Just a full stack, forget the last gen. We've sold it through and we're going hard on every segment. That's like, that's what you would hope they would do at some point here instead of, to be fair, it's not just AMD, NVIDIA does it too. Everyone is like dragging out the releases. 
Yeah, everybody's Dragon Age releases, which tells you that there's some benefit to it, and my uh, troglodyte brain hasn't caught up. But it's, I would, yeah, that would be my, I'd be saying, why wouldn't you go out there and tell the market, I'm coming to address all of these different use cases, all of these different price points, all of these different form factors, and here's how I'm going to do it. If you're not, not confident enough to do that, then it shows, you know, you're, you're a little bit worried about either competitive response or that you've got your strategy wrong and you're dialing mm-hmm. it in as you go, which is, you know, which is the truth of things, right? You can dial it in as you go. Um, it, maybe it helps to avoid unlaunching products when you don't announce them too early, but it's, to me, uh, you know, I, I think back to when the Radeon group would come in and say, like, we're going to build four or five different chips Mm-hmm. You know, from a top end down to a low end, here's your $50 card, 100, 150, 200, 300, 400, 500. This is what's coming. We're starting with these two cards here, the 500 and the 300. Then we're back with the 400 and the 200. Then the $50 card comes in. And it all happened, uh, like you said, for five months. But it didn't really matter too much what the competitor could do about it because they were already locked and loaded as well. What I think mm-hmm. has happened is nobody really knows each other's timelines anymore. When is anybody ready? So, because Nvidia are just, I think they've got their, you know, their powders dry, their guns are loaded, and they're ready to go anytime with a new uh, set of products and get it to uh, market very, very quickly. They've turned into a fantastic uh, execution machine, so they can really rapidly bring something new into market to face competitive threat and. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is trying to key off of them, um, which again, I, th- I think you should. I think you should just go talk directly to your market and ask them what they want and build that for them. And they, I couldn't agree with you more on that part. I think AMD is so. Like I said, up their own ass playing 3D chess against NVIDIA that they've forgotten you don't need to compare yourself to NVIDIA to be successful. I really think the nine hundred dollar seventy nine hundred XT existed because they only compared it to the 4080 12 gigabyte and they didn't think for a second what if they both won't sell well <laughs> like right. what why don't we just make a good product and not compare it to their product and I, I i wonder i really worry about that too because amd seems like to have a real hard time not doing that the the I'd say the 7800 XT is the first time I've gone, oh, finally, they're just doing something they think will sell well and not trying to make it exactly this percentage different than NVIDIA and hoping it sells. Like, like that was, you know, or maybe you disagree about the 7800 XT. I certainly don't think it should be called that name, but. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think you're right. Um, they're, they, um, they need to simplify, get less tricksy, I think it's uh, it's a hangover from uh, so many years of being beat up on and, and criticized, and so it, they they remember the the criticism that stung the most, and instead of going back to simple simpler times, right? So yeah, they just they just need to simplify and stop. They're doing one to two iterations too many of competitive positioning discussions, and mm-hmm. should be just talking about. What do gamers want? How do they want to get it? What are the, you know, what are the key selling features? And talk past their competitor instead of to their competitor about what their new product is. Like, mm-hmm. don't all the car manufacturers don't sell based on putting their competitor in their ad and saying we're better than them. <laughs> 
right? Yeah. They just go and say, here's what we do. We're fantastic at it. You should try us out. Now, there's no try before you buy on, on GPUs, but there are some pretty strong consumer laws. So you can buy one and then be like, you know what? I hate this. I'm sending it back. Mm-hmm. Um, Florida man writes in and he says, where does AMD want to go with FSR? Do they want to keep playing catch up with NVIDIA or is there a new angle they want to eventually pursue? Oof, I got no idea what the strategy is there. It's, um, it's not clear to me. Uh, I think it's an also, um, ran, you know, they, they feel like it's a chat box. They've got to have a solution. Um, I think the group that's working on it is under under resourced. They, they could do more if they had more resources, more investment, more priority. But that's not what the the focus is. So they're just keeping things ticking along. It sounds like you. By the way, you said that you, you feel like FSR. It doesn't. It doesn't really know where to go right now, or something like. Or or you don't feel like the recent releases. It sounds like you feel like they could have been handled better. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I, I haven't enjoyed watching. I, it didn't fill me with glee to see them coming out the way they were received. The way they were I mean, let me just take some pressure off of you and I'll be the one who says it. They said FSR 3 is coming out in 2024. And then two weeks later, it just launches with like no preparation, no rollout, no nothing. And it's half baked. Like what? who said it was going to come out in 2024 and then gave the green light to launch it without giving reviewers enough time to use it? Well, give it another month so it's ready. I don't understand how that even happened. Yeah, that's... Um, I don't know what happened there. That is an interesting interesting thing to happen. But, I mean, I, I guess the plus I was saying of coming out in 2024 is you can say, hey, it's, it's a beta. We put it out in 2023. Or I, But they didn't I, even... No, I they, don't know. It I was know. a beta that I'm, got people banned from playing Counter-Strike. Yeah, that's uh, that is very unfortunate. That's, that's going to... People are going to remember that for a long time. And that's going to, this goes back to the whole conversation of talk to your customer, ask them what they want. They're clearly not listening because I know there's some super smart people at AMD that are deeply in touch with the gaming mm-hmm. community, play games every day, talk to the community. They're, you know, they don't publicly identify themselves, but they're always on Reddit. They're always in uh, the forums. They're always in community chats. They're listening, they're responding, they're helping people because they like gaming and they feel like they're a gamer who happens to work at AMD. And mm-hmm. they're clearly their voice is getting muffled somewhere. They don't have a, a strong path. Um, so, again, it's priorities. I think this comes down to what does AMD tell the world that they are? Gaming company, server company, data center company, or AI company? Where mm-hmm. would you prioritize FSR as an AI company? I wouldn't. I, I would find ways to pivot FSR into being an AI workload or marketing it as an AI workload to get the support that I needed to continue investing in it and advancing it and, and show off. Look, my my technology is so great. I can do all these cool things. This is the benefit of AI power graphics. But you know, that's a lot of work. King Harkinian writes in and he says, is there any point in FSR remaining a compatibility upscaler without any machine learning hardware usage any longer? It made sense back in 2021, I guess, but doesn't it seem like it's at its limits of what can be improved without leveraging specialized hardware? That's honestly the impression I'm getting too is, and I've heard they're working on a machine learning accelerated version that can like leverage RDNA 3 and so on and so forth uh, in a unique way that isn't compatible with everything. 
But it seems like when I see FSR 3 come out, and the most surprising thing for me about FSR 3 was that its duplicated frame image quality, if properly implemented, seems to be just as good as DLSS 3. I did not expect that to happen, you know, but at the same time, the image quality hasn't improved at all. It kind of, to me, seems like the image quality improvement thing is at the limits of what you can do and be compatible on every graphics card. Yeah, there's any kind of algorithm like that or technology is always limited by the uh, features and functionality you can guarantee. It's the same as, you know, do you adopt AVX 512 or do you keep your software to only use 128? Uh, and just not take advantage of the new uh, acceleration that's available. So I think it's time to um, fork it, and there will have to be an FSR AI or something. I don't know mm-hmm. what brand it, how you would do it, but you would need to draw a line and say, okay, we're going to continue on with this quote-unquote legacy version that just uses the commonality of hardware through the standards. And then we'll have a specific version that leverages some specific hardware features. Uh, the problem is, is that you're then signing yourself up for a reference implementation and for how are you going to do that, maintain the support across that. You've got to have an idea of three, four generations worth of hardware, what you're going to do mm. to improve that. So you've got to... Like NVIDIA betting on Tensor cores, they knew that's what they yeah. were going to use. Exactly. They said, we're going to do Tensor, so everything's a Tensor workload, so I'm optimizing for Tensor, therefore my new Tensor cores that work really fast are going to be better for Tensor workloads. It's a circle. So AMD have to do that, but it's kind of hard to do that when you're um, not the uh, market share leader. To make it something happen like that, you have to be the, the leader. The interesting thing is there's a rumor going around right now that I haven't myself been able to verify, nor disprove it's i just no comment really but that amd is partnering with samsung and qualcomm on the next iteration of fsr so that they you know help them develop it further i wonder if this is part of something that i would think the best thing to do with the next i'm wondering if you agree the next generation of fsr is we have standard fsr 4.0 it works on absolutely everything but we have our own plugins for rdna 3 3.5 and 4 and 5 that only we can use this part of FSR4 because, well, it's written for our AI hardware, but anyone can add whatever they want to this open source thing. And Samsung's working on their version. Qualcomm's working on their version for their laptops. And maybe they the cheeky thing to do would then say, hey, NVIDIA, if you want to program FSR4 to work on Tensor Cores, here is the package to do it. And ex- either do it or explain to your fans why you can't use tensor cores with FSR because we're not stopping you. I feel like that'd be such a smart way to pivot this argument of like, if someone's blocking this or why doesn't this game of DLSS, all AMD has to do is say, it's open source, NVIDIA can use tensor cores with FSR whenever they want. I, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, if if that's what's happening, I, I haven't heard anything on this one, but if that's what's happening, that they're partnering with Samsung and Qualcomm, it's a really smart way to solve the commonality hardware issue and to build a, um, it's not, it wouldn't be a standard, but it would be a new API or a new set of common features across several sets of very popular hardware that you could then point to and say, like you said, all these people are doing this, why don't you want to do it too? Um, mm-hmm. And make it, uh, that way you can kind of back into the market. The, you know, the problem there is, is that you can go the other way. Once you start to do that, the other guy finds out about it and says, well, hey, Mr. Samsung, Mr. Qualcomm, don't you want to be compatible with the market? 
market leader and do it my way because here's how mm-hmm. you do that. So it's it's a relationship game. Um, AMD are the right people to go play that relationship and drive that forward. Um, it would be harder for NVIDIA to do that because they historically haven't wanted to work with other companies in that manner. But they're, they're changing that, right? They're becoming more open. They're delivering more open source. They're delivering more um, enablement to the community. Um, they'll have to as they you know, introduce all their new products, especially as they go into the data center. So I think the... I think that would be a, a good strategy for AMD and Qualcomm and Samsung to think about collaborating if doing on. That, yeah. If they're doing that, I, I would say that was a good idea. Um, Alfred Axelson writes, and it says, if I remember correctly, Tom said recently that he had heard from a source at NVIDIA that they're focusing heavily on image quality improvements for things like DLSS and FrameGen. Well, yeah, and specifically what I heard, because I tried to get like put out some feelers, like hey, what's DLSS 4.0 look like? And what I was basically told is, I mean, better 3.5, which is to say, we want to start using DLSS to enhance how good ray tracing looks, how good everything else looks, so that we don't just have a ray tracing performance advantage, but also our ray tracing looks better because of DLSS. So really doubling down on using AI to enhance every aspect of image quality more so than more extra frames or something. But he goes on, rasterization performance on flagships is already very high. Well, ray tracing performance could still definitely use some big uplifts. The latest nodes are also getting expensive, and maybe perhaps frame gen and upscaling with fewer and fewer artifacts is just the way to go in NVIDIA's mind. So anyways, do you think performance tricks, such as frame generation and upscaling technologies, are going to be the main differentiator between GPU generations going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the, the it's still going to be performance number one, um, efficiency number two, but we're seeing a lot more push for the um, the enhancements, the image quality improvements. And again, I think if you go back to like if you were to ask gamers what they'd want, right, is the number one thing they're going to say being more fifteen hundred dollar GPUs or faster three hundred dollar GPUs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are the tricks that you can deliver? Silicon a high margin that you can sell at three, four, five hundred dollars that looks like the previous gen high end, and that's what all these um, upscalers and image quality enhancements and other things are really trying to do. Is you know, instead of rendering four K and ultra quality with all the uh, using twenty gigs of frame buffer, it's a ten eighty render with an upscale and uh, all kinds of tricks applied to make you think that it's still really good image quality. Because, I mean, it is really good image quality. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's going to become a stronger differentiator. Um, I think it's going to come down to the kind of gamers we get out there. It, the gaming market used to be really dominated by the guys that wanted ultimate image quality, and they didn't care about the performance hit. They were just like, make faster hardware then. I don't care. But now you see mm-hmm. every time a game comes out with these gorgeous visuals and massive worlds and fantastic advanced new rendering techniques that only run at 35, 45 frames per second on the latest high-end hardware, they're getting review bombed and told that they don't know how to optimize and they don't know what they're doing. So the 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 rise of MOBAs and battle arenas and battle royale kind of games that don't need ultimate fidelity but prioritize mm-hmm. responsiveness and visual clarity and acuity those kind of games have driven this concept, this perception that what is important now is this ultra high frame rate 
with uh, very reactive uh, experiences. Um, so I think I think that that is a really astute observation that these these kind of image quality improvers are going to become a differentiator even more so because the traditional guys that you know wanted the games to bring their CPU and GPU to its knees. So they can say, finally, now I've got a reason to overclock and save it for the next gen. I'm uh, going to say, well, look, here I can dial it in and get more performance and get everything looking the way that I want. And everybody else that's like, this is stupid. I paid $100 for a game to run on my $5,000 rig with the latest components, and I get 30 frames per second. Um, so it gives a way for the developers to deliver the vision that they want on their uh, game. Because ultimately, the games are storytelling. and they're, you know, they've got movie budgets now, like mm-hmm. out of money being spent on new iterations of games is, 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 is not a million dollars. It's not 10 millions. It's getting into the hundred million. Uh, I believe oh. GTA five made headlines for having a $500 million budget. I can't, I, I, I cringe. I wonder how much GTA six's budget is going to be. I mean, we, it's over a billion. It's going to be over a billion. There's no way it won't be with how well GTA five sold with a $500 million budget. Yeah, I mean, with all the the new things they're going to want to try and do in there, and all the new techniques and all the opportunities for for sponsorship and microtransactions and all that kind of stuff, absolutely, they're gonna they're gonna spend it out, put it out there because again, GTA was one of those games. One of the reasons it's so popular is not just the the game itself, the mechanics, but also just how few bugs there were when it came out. Besides GTA Online, that had a rough month, but yes. That, that, that doesn't exist in my head. <laughs> GTA Online, no. I don't, no, I don't the, know the, the base game worked very, very, very well. Yeah. But that base game worked really, really well, and you got it, and you could just get straight away into it. And it took several years before anybody was like, you know what, it needs CPUs, core scaling patches. But you know, no one noticed that it didn't for so oh, yeah, long because it was so funny, right? So um, that level of polish is really where that kind of money goes to. And I think that that is what every every big studio and game developer is thinking about right now. It's not about, we went through the era of launch a beta as a pre-sale and then keep it beta for a couple of years and then deliver seasons as, and call it seasons for updates and you buy passes, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's fading a little bit and people are back mm-hmm. to, you know what, we need a great day one experience because we're building a brand and then we'll just build that and we'll just iterate on that brand for a decade. Yeah, and you know, I want to say to your thing about like, oh, we brought this graphics cards for to its knees. I think that as being a positive argument and selling point is just so different from when it's a $400 card and when it's a $2,000 card. Because when it's a $400 card and you're like, hey, Crisis needs the newest $400 card and look how crazy it looks. People go, okay, I'll sell my old card and buy a $400 card and this is crazy. I don't think anyone wants to go, okay, I'll sell my card I paid $2,000 for and spend two grand again to get a card, that uh, to get a game that looks crazy. It's just a, it's a fundamentally different argument, you know, for driving visual fidelity if that's how much it costs to do it. Yes and no. I mean, you're, uh, you're fundamentally right. I think it's the cost of change. Like, the the previous gen, gra- like when I was, when, we, when high-end graphic cards were four and 500 bucks, they depreciated pretty rapidly. Like mm-hmm. you would get, there were right. whole generations of people that would pick up the $400 card nine months later for 200 bucks. Right. And that doesn't happen now. Right? Mm-hmm. People still want 98% of the original MSRP 
Yeah, yeah that blows my mind, by the way, that I've seen people go, this used card's like $50 below MSRP. Isn't that crazy? I'm like, no, it should be way cheaper than that. Someone's used that for years. What are yeah. you talking about? Right. I don't what get is, it. What did you do to it when you owned it? That put that much extra value back into it? Is it got like beautiful mm-hmm. paste job and upgraded thermal pads and you've replaced the, the connectors and soldered all the dry what have you done to it has <laughs> kept it so it's not half the value probably of let the heat sink push <laughs> off of the die that it needs to be repasted right when you buy it for almost a new card's price anyways that's probably what yeah. they did with it exactly so you know, yeah I just, you got a point it does the, the cost of change and then you know the, the fatigue on I, I think it's also because we've had quite it used to be a roller coaster, like every year you get a graphics card and it was a big leap up or a significant leap up. And then we had some really big improvements, but they've now turned into much longer time periods. Like, mm-hmm. You know, a 1080 Ti is such an old card, but it's not that many generations ago. Well, so here's an interesting argument um, as I start winding things down here that I heard about RDNA 4 as well. That, and, and there's actually several sides to this, like, that there was this idea, and again, who knows, maybe they might still launch something high end, but from what I saw, and you know, I'll actually make sure that I put it on screen here. Like they had something called Navi 4C. I had the schematics for it. This wasn't a high end card. This thing looked like MI 300. It looked insane. But what I have heard recently too, like one reason why you might not want to go with that, besides the fact that we're not sure anyone wants a $3,000 graphics card right now, is that, you know, AMD is still fumbling with FSR a bit. It's not a checkbox anymore. They want FSR to compete with DLSS because now DLSS is good. And until they have an FSR variant that competes directly with DLSS, how are they going to convince enthusiasts to spend thousands of dollars for an AMD product when its software doesn't look up to par? You don't want to spend thousands and not have the best software too. And then on top of that, one, something someone suggested to me a couple of weeks ago in the industry was like, you know, we have AI changing things. We have ray tracing in kind of a weird no man's land where it's like kind of doable on a $2,000 card, but not usable on a mid-range card. Like there's an argument that maybe AMD wants to focus on mid-range because so much is changing right now. It's kind of quite a gamble to try to sell a $2,000 card in a market where the way we run the game may just be different in three years. You know, we've already seen the 5700 XT struggle to run Alan Wake because of no mesh shader or limited mesh shader support, you might argue. Um, I, I wonder if there's an argument almost there that like AMD is looking at the market and going, if this is true, that they're going to go mid-range only for next gen. And it's that people don't want stronger cards. They want 4090 or 4080 performance for less, number one. And number two, if you bet on a $3,000 card that is not going to be able to run ray tracing games in three years. That kind of seems like a weird bet to make. I wonder how much of that you think might be consideration too of like with how much things are changing, with how behind they are in software. Maybe it doesn't even make sense to try to go for some insane flagship with all of these factors involved. Mm, yeah, that's a that's a weighty subject. So I think I think you know, three thousand dollar consumer products are always a hard pill to swallow, right? There's, there's not many out there. So there's 2000 maybe, right? I think everyone's looking for a reset. So what can you deliver at the sub 2000 for premium high end? You better, better come back swinging, right? 
right? Mm-hmm. I think it, it comes down to is the new high end going to be a catch up or uh, a leapfrog? If you're leapfrogging, it doesn't really matter what price it is you want, right? F- performance sells. Leapfrog, win. Price it whatever you want. Fred River mm-hmm. being an example of that. The other side of it is, you know, do you really think you're um, not going to catch up? In which case, do you want to get out there? It's the GPU market has always been a 90 10 kind of proposition, right? The guy that's got the fastest top end gets most of the market share. You got to challenge head on. So, the, do you need the software to do that? Um, you need you need either a roadmap or a uh, a publicly documented strategy for it, or you just deliver it. Um, I don't I don't think they're in a place to just deliver it yet. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, I think I if you could be if you can be a hundred percent sure you're going to be Nvidia and Raster by thirty percent. I guess you probably don't need the software to be quite as good, but I, I'm I suspecting AMD sitting there and going, it's a pretty wild gamble to make that we're sure we can do that. I mean, and, and if, if Jensen's going to lose, he'll find a way to launch some card that's stronger. You know, he'll go, yeah. he always pulls out all the stops. And this is, this is the competitive um, iteration wrangle that you should stop doing, right? Mm-hmm. AMD should say, what can I build? What is it gonna? What customer problems are gonna solve? What do I need to invest to do it? And what is the return I'm gonna make on it? Does that make sense? Yes, do it. If it doesn't make sense, don't do it. And if if what you're planning on doing is so sensitive to what your competitor does that it's a coin flip for one or the other, then for win loss, right? Then you should diversify away from that market because. Mm-hmm. It's it's a race to the bottom, so mm-hmm. that's that's where they're at right now. Um, I think it would be a mistake to go mid range only. I would love to see them do a high end card. Three thousand dollars is no, unless it is the king of all kings, unless they know with certainty that Nvidia are going to stumble and not going to be able to put something at, at a similar performance level out there at the same time or you know in the same similar time frame. Um, they made AMD's made that bet before, right? Ryzen was we know Intel is going to come back with something we don't know what it is, and they're still waiting for them to come back for it. But Nvidia are not in that position; they are a much much stronger adversary. So, I guess the final question I want to ask you is: um, be realistic. You know, I don't say I want a twenty dollar card that's twice as strong as the forty ninety. Like obviously, and, and and I know that you know you've done this professionally for long enough that I'm sure you have a decent idea of like what realistically could be the thing that comes out next year. What do you think is the card that the market would really die for? Is like the linchpin of a lineup. So by that I mean as examples, a sick a seven hundred dollar card that's as strong as a forty ninety, a five hundred dollar card that's as strong as a forty eighty. Or, you know, a $300 card that's as strong as a 4070. Like, of all of the, and, you know, maybe you don't agree any of those are realistic, you know, come up with whatever you want. But I'm I'm curious, what do you think is the product that would sell in high volume that would actually be the one that gamers want the most? Like, what card with what VRAM at what price? That's realistic. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I think the $500 4080 plus, 
right? You need just a little bit more than a 4080 for 500 bucks. Uh, you need 16 gigs of VRAM. You need it to be well, well under 300 watts, but you need it in that 500, 550 price range, uh, which drives you to naturally have a 350, $400, 4070 competitor. True. Um, but uh, if you had those two cards and then maybe a $1,000 top of stack, which may or may not beat a uh, 4090 Ti Super Ultra whatever, I would, I would hope it would, but you might... You could you could put something there, at, you know, eight nine 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 nine. That would turn the tide and bring everybody racing back. But it then puts a, a focus on your software, right? If you if you do that, you have got to be ready for the influx uh, of success where everybody pressure tests your solution and says. So when they buy like that, it. you know, eighty nine eighty eight hundred XT, they don't go, oh, I miss DLSS. And then never I don't buy miss it again. DLSS. I don't. I miss the NVIDIA installer. How do I do X? Where is my option for so and so? You've got to. You've got to really, really have all of those uh, pieces lined up as well. Um, we you know, on the Zen side of things, we got away with that because everybody knew <laughs> the company had no resources, and that they were, mm-hmm. we were putting it out there, and it was a CPU platform you're supposed to build on it. But we really should have had much more. Um, Builder guides, compatibility guides, a um, lot of uh, you know how to optimize for developer guides. Then we then we had, and it was just simply you know do we get the platform to maturity and learn those things and then launch it, or do we do that while in market? And you know you do it in market. AMD is not in that position anymore, so mm-hmm. it comes down to like are they diversified enough that they could build a fantastic GPU? That is forty eighty bit a bit better than a forty eighty to sell at five hundred bucks, bit better than a forty seventy to sell at three fifty to go toe to toe with a forty ninety at a thousand or even twelve hundred, and wait on it and pause and hold it until they've got the driver experience to be mm. perfect, and that they've got all of the de- game development niggles smoothed out, and they've got all the guides of migration of here's how. Hey, welcome, brand, uh, former GeForce user. This is how you use Radeon for the first time. Because there are people out there that have gamed for 10 years and have never used Radeon graphics. They've never seen the software. It's utterly alien to them. And the, the two UIs are completely different in terms of how you use them, how you manage the graphics cards. You're going to have to handhold those people through that. Can you have the discipline not to throw the GPU out the door as soon as you've got... Mm-hmm thousand chips in hand ready to throw on boards can you wait six months to do all that software prep work do all that education do all that learning and development and hire all the influencers you need to be ready so that on the day of launch it is a cavalcade an overwhelming moment of radio is here and it's spectacular you can mm-hmm. do that you win and now I think that they could actually take that time to do that. And uh, it would take an institutional change in approach of how they you know, launch products. Right now, it's, you know, as soon as the production is ready to ramp, then we are going to sell it. And instead, they need to We've got to beat them to market is what I think they keep telling themselves. Right. It's like, because it's the opportunity cost. Like, I could have sold... Let's say uh, three hundred fifty thousand units 
right, in the six months that I was doing all of that software work, why wouldn't I do all that software work behind, you know, behind the scenes, mm. not sell the card, just for, quote, unquote, the marketing cachet, right? And it, so at some point, it's got to bubble up to the leadership that, like, hey, you really need the brand perception to change. This is your brand that you're putting inside of Xbox and Sony and uh, mobile devices and laptops, and people think that it's not a good solution. You've got to take a moment to pause and get it right and reset everybody's expectations. And then you've got to do that for three generations. Mm-hmm. Then from there, you're done. And that's the Ryzen lesson. Right, because it took three generations for people to really believe yep. that Ryzen was here and it was good. So that's what they need. That's what I would say is the strategy for for radio. Uh, and I have a suspicion um, that that is what they are. That there's at least a part of them. I hope that's thinking that with RDNA four because I think RDNA two. I'll speak for myself. I feel like RDNA two almost got to this point where people were like, "Hey, Radeon's as good as Nvidia, guys. I mean, it's more efficient, costs better. You're giving you more RAM. Yeah, they had a dry a driver bloop over here, but eh, you know, the 3090 had some issues when it launched too. So I just I remember RDNA two. People were like, "It's it's about the same quality." They have Radeon Chill, DLSS isn't that great yet. And something happened with Lovelace and RDNA 3 where I just feel like the brand didn't kill itself. It's still, you can look at their earnings. They say Radeon sales are up technically. So it's not dead, but I do feel like they missed this chance to double down on being in the same realm as NVIDIA. And I think RDNA 4 is like, this is the Nexus AMD. This is where you're going to have to decide, do you want to be regarded in the same like, are you going to build towards that brand it can become, or are you going to keep holding 20 to 35% of the market forever? Because that's all you're going to be able to accomplish as long as you do this. And I, I can't help but think that like they looked at that Navi 4C design that I've heard was canceled, and they're like, we can't afford to do this. We can't even launch FSR 3 without shooting ourselves in the foot, in both feet. You know, So maybe we just need to make sure we have something that works. And I, I'm, the more I talk about it with you, I'm starting to suspect that what they have is they have a mid-range die, a lower mid-range slash low-end die, depending on how you count it. You know, like they got their like whatever it is, their 256-bit card that's monolithic, their 128-bit card that's monolithic. And then I I'm guessing they've canceled the insane one, but they're still like, if we wanted to, we could launch a three nanometer GCD with MCDs right now. You know, and they're just my guess is they don't they haven't made that decision quite yet on that top one. And that decision will come down to if, if they think FSR four and their drivers will be ready to make it. So when people buy that $1,000 card, they don't never come back again. Cause they know they can't, they can't do this again. They can't fumble that again, or people are going to stop. They're never going to get above 30% market share for long-term. Well, I'd never say never, right? There's been so many stumbles and fumbles on both sides. But it's going to take another three-gen, five-year cycle instead of it just happening now. Every time you stumble, you reset when the the three-generation starts again. And like you said, it's five years back to to the path. So it's – I think that – I think that they could start the cycle with a mid and a uh, low mid Mm chip right they you tried to with the 5700 xt right they tried to and it, and it worked and like you said it worked really well because I, I remember the same way i go wow this is actually really competitive and good and then you know the next generation uh 
we, we saw how that worked out, right? Mm-hmm. But that was mostly because there was uh, Intel entering the chat versus um, anything that AMD really did wrong. So now, because of a lot of factors, there's a big reset that needs to happen. So it's how they how they handle that reset. So I would, it, it, you know, talking to you about it, I, I don't think they need a high end to execute the reset. Everything that they need to do to reset and uh, start building trust and, and building beautiful products and great products that deliver excellent gaming performance can be done with a mid and a mid-low chip. It would be nice. It would be a cherry on top to come in with a mm-hmm. high-end GPU, but it would be able to wait for a follow-up generation and say, we we got it solid, we sorted it solid in the center. Now, the problem is we're describing the Intel Arc strategy, right? This is exactly what Intel said. This is how we entered well, this Well, I mean, I, I don't even think it's comparable <laughs> to the top-to-bottom mistake-making that happened there. I mean, uh, you know, I think that's such... First, I just think that's such a level of... Like that, that will add a whole hour to this podcast if we get into that. <laughs> fair, fair. So, yeah, that's there's going to be that hesitation in mind. Um, so it's really, really just draw a fresh breath and, and get started on this new gen. And like I said, they've, they've just got to get, they've got to stop being so wound up on what is the competitive position and just understand if I build what I want to build, am I solving the right customer problem? Am speaking to my market the right way and will that deliver the success that I need from this product to be able to continue and do it again um, and there is always a little bit of competitive nature in there but you know it can't be it can't be existential mm-hmm. well I think that's a good place to close on unless there is anything else you wanted to talk about no that's great thank you so much well I I'll, I will see what they say in the comments. I, well, of course, we will always see what people think in the comments. Um, but uh, I, I'll speak for myself and say, I, I think this couldn't have gone better. And I'm really glad you came on again. Um, please tell people, promote anything you want. I know you have several projects you're working on. I mean, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah. So you can always find me on Twitter at Caveman Jim. I'm always open for a discussion, hanging, uh, technology chats, et cetera, that kind of thing. Um, keep an eye on... Um, there's a new, uh, new project coming, uh, Splave PC, a guy named Alan Gobasilic. He's one of the world's top overclockers. I think he's ranked number one right now, um, for overclocking events, etc. cetera, uh, different records. He's going to build his own line of PC. So you can get a fantastic high performance PC hand tuned by an overclocking master. Um, and we're, we're getting ready to do that. I'm helping him, uh, that endeavor so if you have a link for that send me a link for that Uh, i mean obviously your twitter will be in there but send me a link for that as soon as you can though and i'll put that in the description will do it's real easy splavepc.com just check it out okay well and in addition to that i will pimp myself please subscribe to moore's law z on youtube ring the bell button um subscribe to broken silicon your podcast app of choice on 10 different phones and just download episodes every single day and, you know, give us a review a hundred times and consider joining us on the Patreon too, where you can ask us like this questions and get the episode early and ad free outside of all of that though. I mean, I guess that's it. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening everybody and have a good week. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website. Moore's law is dead. Moore's law is dead and broken silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. 
That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Laws Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Laws Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont, and special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Carrie Nosugad as well. Find all of our information at www.moreslawsdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Carrie Nosugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Laws Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content truly possible. Every month and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and John philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong. We love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and loose ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law Z podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey... If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it, the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Bevan, Drita Foles, E. Jits, Daniel D, Ian Clifford, Aaron Close, Jen Renner, Daniel High, Jeezy Ziggy, Brian Riggleman, MJB1, Sab Miller, Deke, SNES Chalmers, Nicholas Buckner, Jem Ferriera, Valco Malev, Jensen Wang, Andrew S, Gregory S. Acker, Sarcastro, Evan Dingle, Hardforum.com, Chris Rich, Greg Ronchek, 3DS Boy08, Hal Buma, Compressed Earthblocks, Shredbird, Dr. Foreman, Benjamin Cannon, Jonathan, Blake, Franco Frederick, Holden Mobley, Jake223, Jake Martin, Sammy Malas, Slickies, Jordan Simkovic, Stefan Hart, Julian Leek, Meat and Pork, the Boss Haas, Tim Robb, Pentawanta, Travis Gooding, Stefan, Mad, Zutsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Roger Davies, Michael McGee, Greg, Patrick Crow, Amiable Chief, Tommy, Mark Mitchell, I Should, Mark Raidmaker, James Anderson, Cole Addict, Johnson N, Chrysantine, Colin Tadar, The Eternal Dreamers, Cameron, Wesley Sager, Henry Zhang, Neithra Zink, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Hexa Puma, Toka, Reginald Ari, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, GSMMH, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Settler, Loophole 35, Windstar, James I, Raider, Corey Leonard, Little Germany, Shea, Milton, Pulse Media, Dave Schultz, Melodic Warrior, Mac Daffy, 
Stephen Dick, Chuck Glidden, Brett Jones, Austin Haggerty, Justin Bustle, I-711700K, Jamie Witters, Joe Foot, Hardland, Slushboss, C2, My Sharona, Earth Taurus, Jansen Angima, Joseph Kelly, Samuel Park, Keith Moore, Hims at Gung, Tails2299, Mealval, Verga, John, Ben TCC, Sisyphus, The Forbidden Juice, Per Leachman, RB Razor, AC, Richard Cowgill, Winwing, Michael Cosey, Dr. J. Matt, Alex Vega, Free D, Brian Wright, John Swin, Jola Martina, Kikum, Elbergun, Slowrise 80, Thalo215, Matthew Marlowe, Raisin Biscuit, Renick1982, Jeff Johnson, Rowan McKicky, Cornster671, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>